lot, guys. Welcome back to the Vicious Cycle podcast. Just want to thank everyone who's tuning in and listening. I know that your time is the most precious asset we have. So the fact that you are donating your time or investing your time in us, it is greatly appreciated and recognized. So thank you so much um, for believing in this podcast and sacrificing your time to be here and listen today. Um, today, our guest is William Goldsmith, and uh, we uh, talked to him across the sea. Uh, this interview, unfortunately, had a few connection problems, but overall, I think we cleaned it up pretty good. That is one of the, uh, the side effects to doing the uh, long-distance podcasting. Um, we are occasionally having a little bit of uh, connection-type issues, so overall, really good, but uh, you'll see there's a couple times when it wavers a little bit and uh, the a couple times where we just walk on each other just a little bit. And that just has to do with the connection issue and not the fact that we're both really talking at the same time, but uh, overall really great, really great uh, interview. Uh, I do want to say a disclaimer in the beginning of this interview. Um, Willie is going to say some things that I found absolutely fascinating. Um, but I think some folks out there listening might get really upset or not necessarily have the same opinion as far as striped bass management, uh, as far as striped bass numbers, and some of the claims that he makes uh, in regards to the mortality of striped bass from recreational anglers. Please keep in mind that what William is saying is based on his knowledge base, his opinion. Don't crucify me over this. If you do have a question, concern, completely opposed to what Willie says in the following, uh, please feel free to get on the Anchor app, no matter how you're listening to it. And if you go to my podcast, there is an option uh, in the corner there. You can leave me a message. Uh, leave us a message about your thoughts on um, the striped bass and what Willie, Willie is saying, or just about anything. Anything you hear in this podcast that you agree or disagree about, uh, Willie will be talking about uh, bluefin tuna, white marlin, and uh, a plethora of other things. Willie is well-traveled. Um, he's my friend. Um, but that being said, it doesn't mean that we necessarily agree on everything. So uh, the following uh, is, uh, is Willie Goldsmith. And the other thing I want to say before we go to Willie, uh, again, if you're listening to this podcast and uh, you're listening to this podcast and you're giving us your time, we greatly appreciate that. We know that your time is so valuable. That is the one thing none of us get back. So thank you so much. Uh, I really want to honor you guys for uh, being willing to give us your most precious commodity. If you could, like, follow, subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. That would be great. Would really love a review. That means a lot to me. Um, the more reviews, the more listenership, the more listenership, the bigger and better places we can take this. So the following is Willie Goldsmith. Thank you again so much for your time, guys. Uh, aloha. Hey, hey, you there? I'm here. How's it going? Good, man. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks Where are you much. today? Oh, awesome. I'm glad you're here. Where are you right now? I am in Washington, D.C., Kenton. It's, uh, it's pretty nice out, thinking of maybe trying to do some fishing a bit later and, uh, you know, enjoying the springtime. Willie, I know you very well, but why don't you go ahead and, uh, first of all, introduce yourself and give us a little background on uh, who you are and uh, what you do exactly. Yeah, sure, Captain. Happy to. Uh, my name is Willie Goldsmith. I'm the executive director of the American Saltwater Guides Association. We are a nonprofit fisheries conservation group. Uh, and our, our 
our main kind of uh, thrust of, of what we do, Kenton, is our belief that fisheries are better for everybody when they're abundant and there's long-term health of fishery resources. So, you know, our, our main stakeholder group that we work on behalf of are for hire fishing guides from the recreational fishing sector. We also represent folks in, uh, you know, small businesses, so tackle shops and lore manufacturers, as well as conservation-minded recreational anglers who believe in this, you know, in this general idea that long-term conservation and stock health is really, you know, the, the better thing for everybody as opposed to short-term gains and harvest. You know, that, that doesn't mean we're anti-harvest. It doesn't mean we're anti-commercial fishing. It just means that kind of, you know, when all is said and done, we think that having a lot of fish in the water is best for everyone. Certainly for folks who take their clients fishing, you know, having the opportunity to catch fish is really what sells trips. And we want to make sure that we have that opportunity for ourselves and for future generations. So that's kind of our, you know, the, the basic premise of what we do. Uh, right now, we're focused on the U.S. East Coast. So as you can imagine, we do a lot of work with striped bass on, uh, in coastal waters. And we have members from, from uh, Maine down to Florida here on the East Coast. And, you know, we're a science-based organization. We, we advocate for what the science tells us is, is the best available information to support conservation because, you know, we need to rely on the experts and we need to really advance strategies that are going to keep our fisheries healthy in the, in the long term. So that's, that's kind of a bit of, of what I'm doing in the here and now uh, here in D.C., um, so, you know, you, you touched on that a little bit, but, uh, are you actually a national group or you're only East coast? Cause I have never seen anything about your organization in Hawaii. That is fair. Yeah. At this point, Kenton, we are, you know, we're only about two years old. Um, we formed a couple of years ago and so we've been growing really quickly as of now. We are only based on, I won't say we're only based, we welcome members from around the country. Uh, but as of now, kind of our priorities are on East Coast issues, but also broader federal fisheries. So, you know, when it comes to local issues, a lot of our work is, is based here on the coast. But we do a lot of work on, on federal fisheries uh, policy as well. We work a lot with the National Marine Fisheries Service. Uh, you know, we do some work on Capitol Hill on the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which is the main fisheries legislation governing fisheries all around the country. So, you know, while come about, some of our local scale work is, is East Coast for now, uh, we do do a lot of policy work that's relevant to, to folks all around the country. Awesome. Uh, what is the actual mission statement? I mean, you're a nonprofit. What is your guys' actual mission statement? So I would say, you know, our as I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, long-term abundance is really what drives business. And I would say, you know, there are really two main, uh, main phrases that we can use to really describe what we do. The first one is the idea of better business through conservation. So if we take care of the resource, it's going to ensure that all of us are able to stay in business in the long term. And that isn't just people who are, you know, exclusively catch and release or who fish a certain way. The, the idea here is really, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. We want to look out for the health of the resource for everybody involved. And by the same token, kind of the, the second way we think about it is if we take care of the fish, the fish will take care of us. So that's really our best insurance policy for, for long term success is to have a lot of fish in the water. So hopefully that clarifies a bit kind of where we're coming from. And, you know, we're, we're not a trade organization. So certainly, you know, during during COVID, we, we did a lot of work to try to boost our guys up who were, who were being affected by, by businesses being shut down and suspended and obviously look to help them out there. But our main priority is really in making sure that the, the fishery resources on which those biz businesses depend on are, are in a good place. What makes you different than, say, CCA, which is not necessarily the most popular uh fishing related group <laughs> it's a great question and i should mention uh 
you know, I, I'm not an island here. There are several of us who work at ASGA and our president, John McMurray, and our vice president, Tony Friedrich, are both former executive directors of CCA. Uh, Tony was executive director of CCA Maryland and John up, up in New York. And, you know, if I were to say what, what the main differenti differentiating factor is, it's really, you know, we're not out looking solely for the best interests of the recreational sector. You know, we're looking out for the best interests of the resource. So I think, you know, what I learned when I was on Capitol Hill, and we can get to that in a bit, uh, back in 2018, and there was some fisheries legislation going through. For, for some of the, the big recreational fishing groups that folks are familiar with, the big focus was largely on allocation. It was about, you know, how many fish does the commercial sector get to catch versus how many fish the, the recreational sector gets to catch. And that was really a big focus of the conversation. And in our eyes, you know, every minute that's taken in those conversations about allocation takes away from, from larger, more important conversations that are really devoted on the overall health resource. You know, how many fish is everybody taken out of the water? In the end, a dead fish is a dead fish, right? Um, and so that's really where we try to focus our efforts. We think that, that groups like CCA spend a lot of time working on those allocation issues. And, you know, a lot of that, again, is predicated on the idea that, that harvest is, is the driving factor. And for us, you know, we're not saying harvest isn't important, but we think that having, you know, having that long-term abundance is really the most important thing. And so I think that's a, a really critical differentiating factor. And it's, it's found a lot of resonance along the coast, Kenton. You know, we've gotten a lot of folks coming to us, kind of seeing us as a missing voice in, in the conversation. And, you know, we're pretty proud of that. Well, those are really pretty strong, you know, those are really nice words you've strung together. But what does that mean in real world solutions? Like, I mean, no offense, those sound like lawyer words. What what are real world solutions to make that happen? Yeah, no, I think that that's a great question. And, you know, as, as you know, having been on the water so much and, you know, understanding how the management works, I mean, you know, the, the science is one thing, right? And as you know, I have a science background, you know, that's kind of how I how I, how I came to be where I am is, is through doing some of the research. And I think, you know, what folks often miss is that some of the conversations that take place um, in management, you know, in management discussions are not always necessarily advancing the best available science or the science is not necessarily the be all end all. There's a lot of wiggle room in terms of how you react to what the information is telling you. And I think what we try to do you know, if you think about it generally, is we try to be precautionary to the resource. You know, you hear a lot about precautionary management. And, you know, in some cases, that means precautionary to the, to the, to the industry, right? It means taking as many fish out of the water as you can and keeping the industry afloat. And like, you know, we recognize that, that some folks have that perspective. But, you know, for us, for example, if you're thinking about the probability of getting a stock back into a healthy place, you know, we're generally going to choose the most aggressive strategy to get to get that fish stock back into back back to its target or threshold level. Right. We we want to we want to do everything we can to, to take uncertainty out of the conversation. So a good example right now is with striped bass. So, uh, you know, I know you're out in Hawaii, but I know you grew up in, you know, in New England where stripers are a big deal right all along the coast. They're they're by far the most commonly targeted uh, game fish by recreational anglers. Uh, about, you know, 19 million trips a year. You know, a lot of people are going out there. And, you know, right now we're dealing with a stock that's at a 25-year low. And our real push is trying to get that stock back to a healthy place as quickly as we can. And so the question is, you know, how much, how much harvest and how much uncertainty do you want to allow when that stock isn't doing well? 
um, in order to get it back to, to, to a healthy level. And, and we really push for an aggressive strategy that, that minimizes the risk to the resource in the long term. So I know, I don't know if that was still sounding lawyerly, Kenton, but, uh, that's, yeah, <laughs> it was it's still, it's still, it still sounded like you were dodging the question. So how does, what's the reality of how does, how do you see that? Do you see different size limits? You see quotas? I mean, you can give me all the wording in the world, but give us something to work with how we actually make that where people still get to fish for a living and th- what what's a real world solution like like what 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 can we actually put in place to make that happen instead of just wording it really pretty yeah no i i totally get where you're coming from you know and a lot of that depends on the specifics of the fishery right and so what i'm talking about is you know when let, let's say you have a fishery and you're trying to figure out the probability of of rebuilding it in a certain timeline right and we we tend to push for the, for the options that have a higher probability of getting that stock back into a good place more quickly and so that might mean, you know, less less harvest for a short period of time in order to ensure the long long term health of the resource. That doesn't mean we push for you know no harvest fisheries, right? We know people kill fish. We know that's part of the game, whether you're a, a commercial fisherman or a recreational fisherman. But when it comes down to you know weighing those trade offs around what's more important short term consistency in harvest and long term abundance, we're going to choose the latter. So. For example, we might choose uh, a regulatory option that leads to less harvest in the short term, if that makes sense. I don't know if that if that kind of makes it a little more concrete. Now, when you say less harvest, are you referring to just commercial fishermen or also sport fishermen? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I'm referring to everybody. So, you know, one thing that I, you know, you asked about, you asked about Coastal Conservation Association. And, you know, one thing that we really spend a lot of time educating people on is that direct fishermen have an impact you know we catch a lot of fish we kill a lot of fish there are millions and millions of us out there um you know there's been a lot of conversation recently i know uh in the southeast of the united states around around the dolphin fish dorado mahi mahi whatever you want to call them around issues around the longline fishery and how folks in the commercial longline fishery are catching a lot of mahi mahi you know i'm not saying that isn't that, that that isn't necessarily an issue but it's important to notice that that's happening in the context of a fishery where 95% of the harvest is recreational, right? So, you know, we recognize that we need to do our part too. There are plenty of fisheries where the predominant source of harvest is the rec side. And if that's the case, we have to look in the mirror and say, hey, you know, we gotta, we gotta do our part to, to bring the stock back or to keep it healthy. And so, you know, what I'm kind of getting at, Kenton, is, as you can probably imagine is, you know, the, the rec sector is not necessarily one group that everybody thinks the same, right? And I know in your world, in the commercial sector, you get a lot of different gear types, right? And you often see those gear types having, you know, having different viewpoints. Um, but for us, you know, even if you're fishing a similar way, um, in terms of like the gear you're using, you might have very different attitudes about the fishery. And we're really trying to elevate that, that real conservation ethic and that that resource first mentality among among users. And, you know, to do that, we have to tell people that, you know, we're we're part of that. We're we're part of making a healthy resource. We can't foist the blame onto some other group. Um, again, coming back to striped bass, because that's where we spend a lot of time, 90% of, of fishing mortality, 90% of fish deaths are from recreational fishing. And so, you know, that's that's an area we have to focus on. We can't we we can't say shut down commercial fishing. I think that's going to appreciably change what happens to the resource. So we spend a lot of time trying to make folks aware of that. And that's a, and that's a tough thing to do. You know, it's, it's tough to look in the mirror and say, we have to change our ways, but it's really something that's important when it comes to, uh, when it comes to, to getting our fisheries into a healthy spot. 
I think that's a really good point you just brought up there. And I think sometimes because on an individual level, we're like, well, fuck, we only caught five fish this year or right. 20 fish this year, that it doesn't seem like you are doing much damage. But when you right. multiply that by millions of users, uh, it becomes a whole different number. Let me ask you, okay? Yeah. Now, when I was a kid in New Hampshire, like there was almost no striped bass. Like they were in terrible shape. And it was a 40-inch limit. Had to be over 40 inches. And as I grew up, I remember seeing more and more and more and more and more and more stripers. And it seemed like that was a super effective technique. I just remember, I, I remember when I finally caught my first like 40 something inch bass. When I did, I, I wanted to let it go. I, it took me years to catch a 40 inch striped bass in New Hampshire. And, um, but then we see them, so I'm on a more regular basis. And I remember that they changed to a slot limit. Is that where things got bad? I mean, how are we at a 25-year low when in my lifetime I only saw it get better and better until I left? What happened? Well, you left it, you left it the right time because, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that you, you decided you left for greener pastures in what, 2006? Is that about right? Is that when you said I've had enough of, the, uh, enough of this, these cold winters over here? Well, no, it was actually a little bit before that where, okay. where, I, where I stopped where I stopped coming back altogether. It wasn't that I, it wasn't the cold winters, honestly, why I left. It was the endless summers. It wasn't the cold. It was the <laughs> fact that I fa I figured out, well, it wasn't, but I had just figured out a way to fish year round. And that was always my dream. So, yeah, you know, I, I, I just found a way to be able to fish year round. So I, I don't want to say I left the winters because I love new England, you know, yeah. Um, but no, no I, honestly, I, I I mean, this is this is not me deflecting. This is this is me making a bad joke, which I know you're used to. Um, well, you know, yeah, yeah, would, your sense yeah. Of humor, yeah, your sense of humor is weak at best. I'll give you that. But <laughs> well, you know, that's the, one of the better compliments I've gotten from you in a while. So I'll take it. Well, um, I know I, I'm trying I'm trying to tread easy on you early on here um, because this is actually a, this is a legitimate question. Like uh, what happened? I mean, it just yeah. got better and better. What happened? Yeah, it's a great question. Um what I would say happened more so than a certain regulation is really uh, it, it's a management failure, Kenton. And it doesn't have to do with a certain size limit. It doesn't have to do with a certain bag limit or harvest limit. It has to do. And, you know, I, I obviously am, am relatively new to, to, to kind of the, the history of this when I, you know, when striped bass came back for me, I was what in like third grade. So it's, you know, it's, it's been a new thing to learn about and on an academic sense, what we've seen in the last 10 years is the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, which is the 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 uh, the coastwide management body. So for for you know for waters inside of three miles, so you have National Marine Fisheries Service and its regional councils offshore. And in these inshore waters, you have the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, and each state along the coast has a vote. And you know, not to belabor the point, but really in the last ten years, we've seen the striped bass management board that that's part of that commission kind of systemically fail to, to adhere to its mandate to keep that stock healthy. The, uh, there is, you know, th that, that board and the fishery has a set of rules that it's supposed to adhere to in terms of reducing harvest, in terms of rebuilding the stock within 10 years, uh, in terms of, you know, being prepared for recruitment failure and, you know, when there's a bad spawn and doing something about it. And frankly, we really haven't seen a lot of meaningful action there. Uh, this has been particularly notable in the last six to seven years. We've seen some, you know, some serious overages of, of prescribed limits and no accountability for those overages. And, you know, Tony, my, uh, my kind of compadre at ASGA, who's the policy director and, 
and um, he's the former director of CCA Maryland, who kind of saw all this firsthand. You know, he was one of the people kind of beating the table saying, hey, we can't do this. It's going to it's going to be an issue later on. And those warnings were kind of repeatedly ignored and the problem just compounded upon itself. So, you know, I'm not going to say it's any one decision, but it is kind of a combination of all of these, you know, not not following the rules that, that the commission set for itself, which is a real problem. Um, the other the other part of that is something that's called conservation equivalency. And the idea there is basically each state has the ability to set its own its own limits that are, quote unquote, equivalent to the coastwide measures. So, you know, for example, um, let's say the coastwide limit is, is 30 inches. You know, one state might say, well, you know, um, we don't catch a lot of 30 inch fish, but we catch a lot of little fish. So let's make it, you know, we'll take two fish at 18 inches and we'll, you know, and then the technical committee can decide if that's, you know, if that's at, if that's equivalent or not. And, you know, the issue with that kind of mentality is those kinds of changing regulations, A, it's a lot more uncertainty because you're bringing all these new regulations into the stock. And, and B, it's really, you have to hold those groups accountable. You're, you're putting more uncertainty into the fishery. And if you're killing way too many little fish, uh, you need to make sure that you, you know, pay that back. And the, the third thing I'll mention is, you know, with striped bass, you know, as with tunas, they swim, right? So a, a fish that might be too big or too small to keep in one state, if you have conservation equivalency, the moment it crosses state lines, it can get harvested there. And so, you know, there's all sorts of issues with that, with that kind of structure. And it's really a combination of all of these factors with the ASNFC that, that we've been trying to shine a spotlight on at ASGA and, and really try to reform. And, you know, I'll just mention we're in the midst of a, a pretty critical um, change in how striped bass might potentially be managed right now. So the last amendment to striped bass management actually happened right before you left New England. It was around 2000, it was in 2003. And we're uh, doing the next amendment right now, which could potentially totally change the way we manage stripers, you know, in terms of, uh, for example, how long we have to rebuild them, uh, what the reference points are. So like, you know, what the goalposts are for a healthy fishery. You know, there are all sorts of real uh, potential fundamental changes that we're trying to keep a real close eye on and uh, really get this fishery back to a good spot because, you know, as you've said, there a lot of people grew up kind of seeing this fishery recover, right? It was like the great success story. Um, They're everywhere. I mean, even I could catch them. They were all over the place. <laughs> and to have seen that fishery really degrade, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty disheartening. And it's it's personal for a lot of people because, you know, it's it's a fish that you can catch using a lot of different gear, you know, using whatever method you want, wherever you want. Like I grew up catching those fish, like by the TD garden where the Celtics and Bruins play in downtown Boston, you know, catching them in Perkins Cove before bunny Clark trips. I mean, you know, they were, they, they were accessible to people without a lot of means, uh, without a lot of gear. And we don't want to see this fish kind of restricted to folks who only can afford to get, you know, to get offshore or to fish in a specialized way. Um, and so that's really what we're fighting for. Let me ask you something. You yeah. said that we are just dealing with an amendment from 03 and it's 2021. They're just getting to it now. So the amendment was, you know, so this this is basically so that amendment, it's Amendment 6. And that that's basically like the, the roadmap. Right. So that that isn't implementing any specific regulation. That's saying things like, you know, here's the goalpost for a healthy fishery. Here are certain triggers that we need to change management for if any of these triggers are tripped. So it's really just a framework, right? It isn't like man. Why is fishery management? Change, fucked, change, like, 
you can change like size limits and stuff like, you know, in other measures, the amendments kind of the big dog, right? That's the biggest change to, to management that you can make that, you know, might fundamentally change the way in which you're, you're looking at the fishery. So, you know, little changes like season size and bag limits, all that stuff can happen, can happen on a, you know, in, in an addendum or in another measure that's. Uh... Hey there, buddy. Sorry about that. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, yeah. So, you know, as I was saying, Kenton, you know, these, these amendments don't come along very often. They're a real kind of fundamental revisiting of, of how you look at the fishery. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's scary, um, but it's also an opportunity for us to maybe try to improve some elements of the fishery and, you know, really force the striped bass managers to focus on, on some of the aspects of the fishery that we think are really important. So that's kind of where, how we're looking at it. And we've been in the midst, actually today is when the, today, April 9th is the, the last day of public comment. We've been beating the drum of this thing for about six weeks now, getting folks to submit their public comments on the, uh, on the public information document to the amendment. So that's kind of where we are right now. And it's going to be about another, another year or so before this thing is all buttoned up. I, you know, I have two questions now because I, 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 I kind of stepped on you there because we had the slight technical difficulty with the recording there for a minute, but two questions. What does your organization believe is the right size limit universally that um, that striped bass should be, or what 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 are the like the limits that your organization believes should be up and down the coast? And then, um, why do you think like all fishery management is a mess? <laughs> Great questions. Uh, you know, on very equal altitude too. Um, <laughs> I'll take the first one. I'll always take the first one first. So. When it comes to size and bag limits, um, when the conversation around ending overfishing happened, which was a couple of years ago, when they were trying to kind of stop the bleeding of what was going on, our group pushed for one fish at 35 inches. And the reason for that was really, we had seen that work before, right? So when you were growing up, the coastwide limit was, was one fish at 36. We saw those fish come roaring back. That doesn't, you know, it, that's not solely because of one fish at 36, you know, you need good spawning years as well. There were some really good spawning years, but we, we saw that measure work. Now, when it comes to saying what measures to take right now, what we first do is we have to lean on the technical committee and see what are the options, right? What are the options to get us to where we want to be? And we don't, we don't, you know, the, the striped bass board has to ask the technical committee for those options. So, you know, I don't want to give you a recommendation and say, that we, uh, you know, we support X move because I might not be able to tell you with any certainty that that'll get us to, uh, to a good place for the fishery. So the first step is asking, you know, the, the, the experts, the stock assessment folks, the technical committee, you know, what are the options that would get us to our goal? And then I can give you, give you the pieces. What I will say is that we are not pushing for a moratorium. We know that, that some folks in our community are. You know, as back in, the, back in the 80s, many states implemented a moratorium when the fishery was in really bad shape. You know, we're not there yet. We're, we're not in great shape. The fishery's sliding down, but we have an opportunity to get things back into a, into a good spot. And we think we can do that without a moratorium. So, you know, we're, again, we're asking for better input on the science. A couple of years ago, we did push for one fish at 35. It ended up being one fish at 28 to 35. They implemented a slot limit. Um, but that's kind of where we are uh, in that conversation. When it comes to your second question about fisheries management and how it's all so messed up, that is a big, big question. And I, you know, when, what I'm talking about right now with striped bass is a little bit different than what I think you're talking about. So, 
you know, we've kind of got three different altitudes here we're dealing with, right? We've got state management. So, you know, what are, what are in your case, what are Hawaii's limits for its state managed fisheries and, you know, which it largely has autonomy over in terms of setting those limits. You've got your federal stuff. So uh, in your case, you've got, you've got Westpac setting limits for federal waters uh, here on the East Coast. And where I am, you've got the Mid-Atlantic Fishery Management Council. And then you've got your regional fishery management organizations, right? You've got, uh, in your case, the uh, uh, WCPFC, Western and Central uh, Pacific Fisheries Management Commission. Uh, uh, over here, we've got ICAT, the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas. And these are like big multilateral treaty organizations, right? So ICAT over here has 52 nations that come together and, and bicker over how many tuna can be caught. Uh, so, you know, each one of those has its own set of challenges. Um, it's been pretty fascinating for me to kind of see each of them and, you know, each of their respective strengths and shortcomings. It's pretty fascinating. Uh, what I'm talking about with striped bass is largely a, you know, it's an interstate management issue. Uh, in my mind, it has a lot to do with the lack of oversight and really legislative mandates to, to do good work. I think that's a big part of it in that case. When it comes to the Madness and Stevens Act, uh, which, again, is, is the guiding federal legislation around the country, you know, we generally think that that MSA has been has been pretty successful. Uh, we know that each of the regional councils has its own issues. Each is, you know, there's been uneven implementation, let's put it that way, at each of those councils and trying to, you know, implement those requirements. So rebuilding socks as quickly as possible, adhering to the best available science, uh, all, all of these elements. Uh, some councils have gone, gone above and beyond, others have it. Uh, you know, we do have suggestions, and in this in this Congress, we'll be we'll be leaning on on legislators to to make that law stronger, to really you know make sure that we're ending overfishing promptly, and we're we're not letting fisheries to kind of you know sulk in a in a chronically overfished state, which is something that we've seen with some species like cod, for example. Uh, the the RFMO stuff, Kenton, is just I mean, it is just such a morass, and it's so varied across the different ones. I think ICAT, which is what I'm most familiar with is the oldest one, right? It's been around for, I think, around 50 years. And, you know, that group is ahead of many of the other RFMOs, which manage, you know, your big eye and, and, and stripies and all that stuff. But but even but even ICAT has huge issues. Um, you know, we've seen the can't get kicked down the road on on big eye tuna conservation on other issues, because, you know, even though voting is a even though voting is something that can be part of it, uh, the group likes to only move forward with consensus. And, you know, we talk about the different stakeholders that we have, Imagine getting 52 different countries together, um, you know, with three different official languages, let alone during COVID when it's all happening remotely and trying to get consensus on an issue. Right. It's, I mean, it's a it's a disaster. Um, so we end up seeing a lot of status quo. We end up seeing a huge amount of inertia and bureaucracy. And it's a really tough challenge. It's basically all of the challenges of international relations that we see, you know, in global politics compounded with, you know, the confusion and uncertainty that, that you mix in with fishery science and all of the hedging and all the probabilities that I'm talking about. And when you stick those two things together, you don't put yourself in a great position to take meaningful action. Um, it's a real challenge. And I think, you know, we, you know, the, the U.S. tries to be a voice of, you know, of, of, of science and of, of conservation. But of course, you know, we're, we're subject to our own internal interests as well. And so within each of those, you know, within each of those countries, you've got internal tensions as well. So there's a lot of challenges there. I think I, I'm optimistic about federal management. I think we've seen successes in the last 20 years and hopefully we'll continue to see those. Uh, there's potentially a, a reauthorization of the federal fisheries law on the table, uh, you know, for this Congress or at some time in the near future. 
and we'll be sure to be part of that conversation. But it's a big question, man. You know, there's a reason why people devote their careers to it because there are a lot of challenges at all the different levels to try to tackle. Let me ask you, because this is something I've heard uh, bellowed from fishermen my whole life. And everyone always says it's corrupt. It's corrupt. How much corruption do you really think is involved in our fishery managements? That's a great question, Kenton. I mean, you know, I personally, now that I'm kind of in the business, right, and like, you know, did my PhD, worked on Capitol Hill, working at an, at an NGO, having a lot of friends who are, you know, in these organizations, you know, I think a lot of the people who are part of the management process are in it because they're passionate about it. They're in it because they they love the resource, they love fisheries, and they want to make them better. I really do believe that. Um, you know, I don't think that's universally the case. I think we see that, for example, at the state level, you can have a huge amount of political interference in the conversation, right? So, you know, some states, their, their, their fisheries folks might be insulated from those politics. You know, other states, you know, sort of like you might see at, at a federal level, um, if a new governor is elected, they might clean house. And if that governor happens to represent a certain interest group, you might see a complete 180 in the way that in, in the way that group addresses fisheries. So, you know, this is me speaking from my experience. I think your experience might be different. Um, I generally tend to think that managers have the best interests of, uh, you know, have what they think are the best interests in mind. Um, you know, that's maybe, you know, maybe I'm just not old and jaded enough to think otherwise. I do think there are exceptions to that rule. And, you know, the real problem comes in when people who aren't on, on the water or when people who aren't experts are the ones making the decisions from the top. Um, I think that's much more likely to happen at a, at a local or state level than it is at a federal level. That's, that's, my, that's my personal perspective. How about, you know, one thing I've heard and I've witnessed firsthand myself and one thing that's been, you know, all the way, like, I mean, I went to my first fishery management meeting when I was like 13 years old in New England. And back then... Oh <laughs> It, yeah. And it was very heated. You know, I, I found that stuff interesting and very heated. And, you know, one argument that I always saw in the papers is that the wolf is watching the hen house. I've heard that, read that in papers. I've seen that firsthand myself. Now, I understand that you need to have user groups involved. But how often do you think in these voting boards, there's people that are just too biased to make a decision that's in the best interest of the fish? It's a great question. Uh, I believe the more common term is fox guard in the hen house, but you know, oh. it's okay. I'll, I'll give you a pass on that one. Um, Thanks. Yes. Fox. But... Yes. I apologize. <laughs> no, you, can imagine you, know, a wolf, you can imagine a wolf would cause a lot of problems as well. Yeah. No, you know, you're right. Yeah. yeah I'll give you credit on that. Um, yeah. It's, you know, like a really, it's like a really big fox. Yeah. A really big fox. You know, you yeah. raise a good point and it's, it's a challenge, right? Cause, and uh, I will have an answer to this. This is not me squiggling out of this, I promise. And I know, you know, I'm good at that, but this will not be one of those. Uh, you know, you end up with the situation that you, you want to have everybody to have their voice heard, right? And you want to be inclusive to the process, but you don't want, you know, a couple of loud and perhaps ill-informed voices completely derail and dominate the discourse and then have the decision be based on that, right? I see this at the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, where somebody will say that like striped bass go through menopause and, you know, like something ridiculous and nobody will refute that claim. And it goes into the proceedings of a meeting and nobody comes up and says that is not true. Um, and that's a real issue. You know, 
people can have opinions, but opinions should not get in the way of what the facts are about the health of the resource. And I think this is a constant source of exasperation for a lot of scientists because, you know, you, as I mentioned earlier, you try to separate the management decisions from the science, but you need to sep- but you need to base your management. You need to kind of have your scope of questions based on that science. So I think it's really important to have people provide their input, but you need to make sure that you're, 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 you're qualifying that input with like facts, with the science and what we know. So a good example of this just recently, and I'll just mention this because it's, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's a bill that's been going around Congress right now, but there's, you know, this idea of for federally, for federally funded fisheries research to have like a stakeholder advisory committee to basically decide what projects are important and what projects are not. Right. And which one should get money and which one shouldn't. And I think that's great. I think it's great to have people who are in the business who understand the issues on the water be part of that conversation. But, you know, an important first guardrail for that is don't give those folks a bunch of projects that aren't scientifically feasible or that aren't going to provide useful results. So, like, I think that's great. But you need to make sure you're putting, you know, you're putting boundaries on that so that, you know, those voices and those perspectives are still within, you know, the science. That's a federal law is to basically base fisheries management on the best available science. And I think, you know, sometimes we see the conversation really get veered off course by, again, a couple of loud voices in the room. Um, Honestly, like, you know, maybe not a great thing to say, but I think COVID has actually given people a lot of gumption who are not those loud voices to speak up, to speak up on webinars, to speak up on public hearings and really be part of the conversation and not be scared or intimidated. I think that's great. Um, And, you know, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I've got a question about not being scared or intimidated, because since I've started this podcast, I've had people reach out to me that said, man, I would love to be on that podcast. I wish I could speak. And um, I've had people from National Marine Fishery Service. I've had observers. I've had other scientists. I've had one person tell me they've got a video uh, from their days observing that had 1,400 sharks in one person net that would shut down the fishery, but they're afraid to show it because they'll lose their job. And I just wonder how often, like, at least three people I've reached out to now have said, man, I would love to be on your podcast, but I would lose my job or I might lose my job. How many, how often do you think that happens in fishery management that people have a different opinion, but the organization has an agenda and they're just scared to speak up because they're concerned about feeding their families? And you're, yeah, you're talking about like self-censorship, right? That's kind of the general idea here. Is that, well, for, is that kind of the idea? Like, well, I, have for, this well like, I, I mean, yeah. well, why should these people in fishery management be scared to tell the truth? That That's what I'm worried. Because, I mean, I'm starting to hear this over and over again. Um, are, are people in these professions, why should they be scared to tell the truth? Is that because, you know, if, if you don't go with the agenda of, of these of these organizations, you're going to lose your job? I mean, what, why? I mean, I've heard this now in th- this week alone, you know, four different times people yeah. say, hey. I would love to tell you the truth, but if I do, I might lose my job. I mean, that seems yeah. like legitimate fear to me. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a fair point. And, uh, you know, I, I'll first off say I don't think that's unique to fisheries. I think, you know, certainly like in the last administration, for example, there were reports on folks who were, you know, didn't want to say certain things because they were afraid of the same thing. And I think, you know, that's it, it, it's a concern that, you know, I think transcends a lot of these kinds of issues, natural resource issues in particular. And. 
again, I think it depends on what you're dealing with, right? I think when it, I, I think with state issues, it can be a very real concern because there's a lot less, you know, the line from A to B is a lot less. There's a lot less red tape there, right? I, I think, you know, beyond the getting fired part, Kenton, I think is like the credibility part and the relationships part, right? That's what I would view as the real challenge. And this kind of comes back to your point around, you know, stakeholder involvement, right? So, you know, imagine if you, you know, you know, it wasn't, imagine, imagine you're on somebody else's boat and there's an observer on that boat. And, uh, you know, something bad happens on that trip. And like, and, and the captain of the other boat has been a, a great collaborator with the, you know, with the observer. Um, and, you know, you, you basically, you risk throwing away that relationship and totally jeopardizing your reputation as a researcher or a manager within the fishing community, right? And that's a really tough thing. It's kind of that, that you know, I'm not talking about the being fired part, but it's like the credibility and the ability to do your work effectively. I think that's a real issue, right? And that's a problem. And I think that, you know, it's a, it, it's a really tough nut to crack. I mean, you know, in a perfect world, uh, you know, marshmallows and butterflies and all that stuff, you'd want the fishermen to be on the exact same page and say, hey, you know, this is a problem. I just got 1,400 sharks in a, sing in a single set, right? Let's do something about it. Let's come up with some more effective ways to avoid bycatch or, or fish, you know, fish different areas based on, you know, water temperature or chlorophyll or what have you. But the reality is, you know, that's often not how those conversations go, right? They go with the fact that, you know, this scientist works with the community and they, they there's a lot of quid, you know, quid pro quo there. And I'm not saying scientists are corrupt. What I'm saying is that there's a need to balance those, those relationships um, with, with conservation of the resource. And I think that's a really, really tough thing to do. And coming back again, I think there are absolutely cases where people at state agencies have been fired because, you know, they did a study and they found things that the, the administration didn't want. So I think, again, it depends on what level you're dealing with. Um, but I, you know, it's really interesting to hear that concern. I don't hear a lot of that kind of at the federal level over here. But again, you know, I'm not the one doing a podcast with people coming to ask <laughs> to tell their story. So I probably don't have as good a, as good a, a perspective on it as you do. But I, I, I appreciate that concern. That's that's pretty, un pretty unfortunate. Well, I've got a question for you because you just brought up there's so much you just said there. But, um, you know, like uh, as I've gotten deeper and deeper into this and I mean, I'm kind of in the beginnings. And I, I didn't ever start this podcast to disrupt uh, what is happening in our fisheries. I, I started this podcast to um, highlight fishermen's lives and um the life of being a fisherman and people involved in the water. But these things just become reoccurring issues because they, they, they face all of us, you know, that all the decisions that are made directly affect everyone that uses the water. Kind of like what you guys are saying with the user groups that everyone, everyone has a effect, whether it's directly or indirectly that makes a decision or, or participates in the user group. So I, I think, um, you know, I don't think I ever meant, and I certainly never, started this podcast with the idea that I'd be stirring, you know, I'd be, I'd be stirring the pot, but it, it, it seems like the more I've gotten into it, it's just a reoccurring theme. Yeah. I mean, Hey man, you, you know, you spend, you spend 330 days at a, a year on the water and you see stuff and then you come to the meetings and you see how it works. And I can appreciate, you know, bringing that perspective, I think, and, and getting folks on the line is going to, is going to stir the pot a little. And that's not a bad thing. You know, I think 
having these honest discussions is an important part of getting things in, getting things into a, into a better place and on a better trajectory. So I think it's a, a great thing to have these difficult conversations and, you know, there's always going to be that tension, you know, there's that, you know, the, the bureaucratic inertia of, uh, of fisheries management, you know, for example, I know there's been a lot of effort. I think it's in the, the draft reauthorization bill for Magnuson around, you know, protecting observers, for example, around against harassment or anything. And, you know, there there are efforts that, that are being undertaken. Um, but, you know, a lot of this is back comes back to social norms and social pressures, too. Right. And, you know, coming back to our group, you know, we spend a lot of time at the regulatory level. We, we write a lot of public comment letters and give a lot of public, you know, give a lot of testimony at hearings and everything else. But a huge amount of our work is outreach and education. We, you know, and of course for us, it's largely on the recreational side, but letting folks know about the issues and kind of how their, how their actions impact them and, and giving, giving people a, a broader understanding, as you said, you know, one person keeping five fish isn't a huge deal, but you know, 20 million people doing that becomes an issue. And, uh, you know, th that's a big part of it is that, is that kind of softer social side of it where we really try to try to do it. I think a podcast is a great, is a great platform to kind of have some of those conversations to get people thinking, because it's, it's easy to just kind of get into the, you know, in, into the, into the rhythm of regulations and legal frameworks and all of that. But, you know, we are managing people, right? We're trying to figure out how best to, how, how best to manage users of the resource to maintain a healthy resource. And to do that, you really need to think about what's going on in people's minds and uh, what's motivating them. And I think that's, that's really where we try to come in as well. I've got two questions about the stripers because this is what you're dealing with right yeah. now. What percentage yeah. of the commercially caught stripers are from rod and reels? And then um, who are you getting the most critics? Like, uh, you know, who are you getting the most, um, backlash on this campaign from from actually the youth, the, the 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 recreational anglers that kill ninety percent of them, or the commercial fishermen. Where where are you facing the most pushback? That's a great question. Um, offhand, Kenson, I can't say the percentage breakdown rod and reel versus other methods. Um, I know in, for example, in uh, Massachusetts, it's a rod and reel fishery. That's how guys catch them. The uh, I know New York has a gillnet fishery. Uh, the Upper Chesapeake Bay in Maryland has a gillnet fishery. So there's a fair amount of netting that goes on as well. Um, I believe pound nets as well. So there's, you know, there are different gear types besides rod and reel that come into it, but certainly in some fisheries, that's a big part of it. And, you know, as with the bluefin tuna fishery over here, a lot of the guys who participate in it are, are folks who are, you know, nobody's making a full-time living off striped bass rod and reel, right? It's a, uh, it, it's kind of a, a supplemental source of income. I'm not, I'm not saying that in a bad way. It's just the reality. And a lot, you know, a lot of guides, right? A lot of charter captains might on their day off, go, go kill some fish and sell them. Uh, so, you know, that's, it, it's kind of that, that kind of fishery, right? Where you've got people who are using it in different ways um, to kind of help make ends meet is, is a lot of the fishery. That, that isn't the case in places like Maryland, where you have folks who are making more of a full-time living off it. But I uh, just want to mention it's more of a mosaic. Uh, in terms of the pushback, that's a great question. Uh, it's been pretty surprising, frankly, to see kind of the, the tidal wave of support behind a lot of our a lot of our positions in the last uh, in the last six weeks or so. We see a lot of people supporting our supporting our talking points. I'll, I'll say that on the rec side, we've seen a fair amount of pushback. There hasn't been a huge amount of commercial like organized commercial voice. Again, it's it's 10 percent right of this fishery. It's not a huge fishery. There aren't a whole lot of full time folks who participate in it. On the rec side, we've seen some folks who are pushing for much more aggressive action. A lot of people are talking about banning commercial fishing. 
folks are talking about a 10-year moratorium. You know, there are other actions that are out there that are being discussed. And, you know, we want to be a reasonable science-based group. We want to be addressing the problem where it is. And so we really want to focus on the rec sector. We think there are certainly issues with the commercial fishery in terms of permits and, and you know, accountability and all that stuff. But, um, you know, we've been focusing on, on the rec side uh, there. On the commercial side, I think people get mad at us because they don't know what we're about. And then we have conversations and the understanding becomes a lot clearer that, um, you know, we're not anti-commercial and we're trying to benefit the resource. And the reality is, you know, those voices calling to ban commercial fishing, those aren't going to change if the fishery continues to get worse. And so the reality for commercial guys is likely that if the fishery continues to get worse and worse, there's going to be more and more public pressure put on those folks, regardless of, you know, what the data show. And so that's something to keep in mind. Um, the other thing I'll mention is there are a couple of commercially minded states that have been talking about the reference points, um, which, again, is like the goalpost for what's a healthy fishery. And there's been a desire to lower those goalposts. Uh, conveniently at a time when the stock is at a 25-year low. And so the analogy we use is it's like water quality standards, right? It's like, well, you figure you can't get there, so you just want to lower the bar. Um, and we think that that's basically a, a ploy to try to, to, to get more short-term harvest because it'll, you know, it, it'll mean that you don't have to get to as high a number. So, you know, there have been a couple states of, of you know, not exclusively, but, but largely commercial interests talking about that. I haven't heard a lot of individual commercial fishermen saying that. Uh, you know, I, you know, we, we don't know everybody, but we know a fair amount of folks who fish both recreationally and commercially. And that, and that's kind of largely the perspective that we're trying to bring to the conversation. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, you know, I, myself, as you know, I love recreational fishing, but I'm a commercial fisherman. So it's always interesting to hear other people's standpoints with, with that. Yeah, I mean, and you know how it is, right? Like New England, it's like, you know, everybody does everything, right? Like, it's it's really interesting you know it's a continuum it's not a dichotomy uh i know not all fisheries around the country are that way but if you love fishing you love fishing right like that's i know that's you right i mean i that's, do that's the driving force and, and you want that fishery to be healthy at the end of the day like you know what you're doing with that fish you're still doing it you know you're still being out in the water you're still you know doing this really really tough profession and there's got to be some kind of some kind of motivator behind that. And I think a lot of our folks are those kinds of people. And that's really a, mes a message that we try to make sure is clear because, you know, the last thing we want to do is come off as an elitist group that's looking, you know, looking to sell the last fish off to the, to the highest bidder, right? We want to make sure these resources are available for everybody, you know, to sell fish, to, to, to take a fish home, to release fish, you know, and we need to figure out the best way to balance those interests. But in the end of the day, none of those can happen if you don't have the fishery in a, in a, in a healthy in a healthy status. That's where we, you know, that's really the, the drumbeat we've been watching. This may be a number you know, and maybe it's not. And if you don't, I understand. But what is the value that recreational uh, striped bass fishermen bring in? And what is the value commercial fishermen bring in? I, I don't know offhand, Kenton. Um, I know that the recreational fishery brings in a lot more money you know, unsurprisingly, right? I mean, the, the ex-vessel price of, of a striped bass cannot really compare with, um, you know, all of the all of the economic activity that's generated by, by striped bass recreational fishermen. You know, and I think this gets into, again, you know, I mentioned earlier, we're a resource first group, right? We're not out here to pick winners. So, you know, we understand that those arguments could be used to, uh, you know, to talk about allocation discussions and all that stuff. But, you know, the reality of it is, again, a dead fish, the dead fish and putting it into the hands of one other person doesn't necessarily uh, change that. 
Um, you know, what I'll also say is that, you know, putting on my economist hat for a second, what you really have to think about here is not just like the overall value, but also like the marginal value. So how much more value would a, would a recreational fishery get from one more pound of striped bass compared to the commercial fishery? Uh, there's a lot of really cool economics research that's, that's kind of delved into that. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of that work isn't really being used in management, in management right now, but it is out there. Um, you know, I see where you're going. I think, you know, speaking a little bit biased because a lot of my a lot of my PhD was on this in the in, in tuna fishing. Uh, you know, getting that work into the management discussion is really important because you need to understand how most efficiently to allocate your resource. That's a uh, you know that that's that's part of the law. That's part of the Madison Stevens Act. And again, you know, for us, it, it's a second order concern. Uh, we recognize that it's you know it's a concern, and for some people, it's the only concern. You know, what's my piece of the pie? Uh, but there are some really effective tools out there that, that could be better applied to striped bass. And I think I, it's worth mentioning that in our comments on the on the amendment, we recommend that the striped bass board really consider a lot more of the socioeconomic research that's out there and support uh, and support some of that research in order to make sure that it's it's, um, it's being considered because it's a it's a it's a vital part of the conversation. You know, you've mentioned the Magnuson Stevens Act, and I'm very familiar with it. But yeah. for the listeners that aren't, can you give us the elevator pitch of what exactly the Magnuson Stevenson Act says and why we keep referencing it? Like, why had what exactly what came about? Why this had to be implemented in the first place? Sure. Um, so the real Cliff Notes version is the Magnuson Stevens Act was implemented in 1976, uh, largely as a result of there being foreign fleets around U.S. shores and catching a lot of our fish, basically. Um, so one of the main things that, that MSA did was it established these eight regional fishery management councils around the country that manage fisheries in our exclusive economic zone from three to 200 miles offshore, you know, got those foreign vessels out of, out of domestic waters and really focused on, on trying to manage our fisheries. Un unfortunately, a lot of what we saw during the 80s was instead of saying, okay, we've got other boats out of our system, let's manage this more effectively. We basically saw um, a lot of ramping up of our domestic fisheries to the point where we are overfishing a lot of our stocks, uh, you know, which is not, not a great situation. Um, but that being said, there's been, you know, some huge improvements to, to you know, Magnuson Stevens, or as we call it, MSA, in the last 25 years. Um, in 1996, there was a reauthorization of the bill. In 2006, there was a reauthorization of the bill. These put in place uh, habitat protections, um, annual catch limits, so saying you couldn't catch more than a certain amount, and if you did, you, you had to be held accountable to it, uh, and also a requirement to rebuild overfished stocks as quickly as possible. So, you know, ideally in no longer than 10 years, but really, you know, as quickly as possible, recognizing that, that having those fisheries in a, in a healthy status is what's, is what's most beneficial. Uh, the, the law also established 10 national standards, and I won't go through all 10 national standards, but they're, they're things like, you know, maximize safety at sea, uh, base your management on the best available science, uh, manage for optimum yield, which is, you know, basically the, the amount of harvest that keeps the fishery healthy, um, you know, as you account for any other socioeconomic or, or, or cultural concerns as well. So those are a couple examples. Maximize efficiency and equity and allocation. Uh, you know, really, Magnuson is kind of the, it, it's, the, it's the guiding legislation for all of our federal fisheries. So it's the landmark. If you catch fish that are managed by a council instead of by uh, a state, then you're, you know, the management of that species is, is uh, coming from Magnuson. So 
in theory, if an organization wasn't living up to the rules implemented by national, you know, by the Magnuson Stevenson Act, what what would what are possible issues that could happen for them? Like, let's say let's say a, like a regional area decides to make a uh, decision on fisheries that make it unsustainable. Uh, what would be the what could be the possible pushback from that? Well, it depends on <laughs> it depends on how nice of a group you are and 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 uh, and what your you know what your orientation is, right? So, one group you know might write a stringently worded letter to the Secretary of Commerce. Uh, one group might sue NOAA, right, for uh, you know for for allowing catch of an endangered species for not adhering to to Magnuson Stevens. You know, there's a lot of judicial a lot of suing that goes on in the federal government. NOAA is no exception, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, that that's a big legal recourse that that folks have if uh, if these things aren't being adhered to. What I will note, Kenton, is I've mentioned the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, which managed stripe manages striped bass. That commission is not subject to judicial review. They cannot be sued, and that's a big problem because really all we can do is, is stomp our feet and, uh, and and yell about it. We don't really have what? legal recourse. So that's you know that that's a big shortcoming, something worth thinking about. Um, but generally speaking, you know, I'm sure you you know them, Kenton. A lot of the big ENGOs out there, um, a lot of what they do is file lawsuits uh, for violations of, of MSA, uh, Marine Mammal Protection Act, Clean Water Act. Uh, you know, all, all of these different large federal laws that are that are meant to ensure responsible stewardship of our natural resources. I see. Well, okay, you pretty much summed that up. Yes, sir. What's up? <laughs> you know, I mean, I could talk about this stuff forever, but let's talk about how we got here. Uh, how me and you got to this point. I, you mentioned a few things. You mentioned tunas, um, uh, uh, you know, your Ph.D. Why don't you tell us your background before you uh, wore a suit full time? Uh, tell us what gave you your background where you're credible. Where, where'd you go to school? Where'd you go fishing? How did you get to be the Willie Goldsmith before us today? Oh, God. Um, let's see. Well, you know, credible, I guess, means two things, right? Depending on who you're talking to. But so a little bit about me. Uh, I grew up in downtown Boston, uh, you know, right downtown by Fenway Park. Uh, and my, uh, I grew up spending a lot of my time up in Gloucester, Massachusetts, which is up on on the North shore of, uh, of Massachusetts. And I'm sure many folks know is a, a big time fishing port, or at least it used to be a very big time fishing port. And, uh, you know, I, I was obsessed with fish since I was four years old. Um, my nickname in, in kindergarten was Willie goldfish. Um, that is my Instagram handle, by the way. Uh, you know, that's people who have known me my whole life have known me as the fish guy. Uh, I do not think that's an exaggeration at this point. Uh, I remember as a little kid, I would do my homework and I would race out to the Charles River and catch carp and largemouth bass. You know, and this was not a river runs through it, right? I was not fishing some pristine trout stream, you know, looking for, for cutthroats or whatever. I was looking for a largemouth hanging out in a shopping cart or behind a construction cone or, you know, carp grazing on some, some bread that somebody had fed ducks that then sank to the bottom. I mean, it was pretty gritty stuff. Uh, but I loved it. I thought it was so cool that these fish could make a living in this kind of environment. And, you know, the funniest part was people sailing and rowing and walking around and biking and nobody knew about it. It was kind of a, a gem in plain sight. And it just kind of astonished me that, that, that how resilient those fish were. And so you can imagine, you know, how amazing it was for me to learn later on how much damage we'd done to this, these resources, seeing really how resilient a lot of the, a, a lot of uh, a lot of nature can be. And so that was kind of one part of it, Kenton. The other part, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is, again, growing up in Gloucester, uh, my dad would take me on a party boat 
uh, called the Lady Diane out of Rockport, Mass. You know, a little uh, maybe a, a six, 60 foot party boat, you know, would take people out cod fishing and, you know, you'd drop drop a couple gobs of clam to the bottom on 16 ounce, 16 ounce lead and, and bring up cod and haddock and redfish. And I remember seeing my first wolf fish and just being astonished to kind of this bounty that was right here off the coast. Uh, and then, you know, kind of growing up on those boats and, and, and hearing, you know, meeting all sorts of different people. And I'll, I'll say, you know, one big thing for me has always been the different kinds of people I meet, you know, I mean, um, I think it's rare to have a, have a passion that brings you into contact with such a cross section of, of humanity. And I, I don't, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating there. I've met so many, you know, colorful characters from all walks of life. And, you know, really, I take a lot of pride in the fact that I've got friends from kind of all over the place, you know, from in, in every spectrum imaginable. And we all come together because we love fishing. We have all this kind of this inexplicable uh, draw to, to catching fish. And it's it's really phenomenal. I think I think you feel the same way. And, you know, uh, from there, just I guess I, I'll, you know, pick it up uh reading about this, this, uh, this party boat up in, um, in a party boat for, I'm sure folks know is, you know, a recreational charter boat that takes more than 12 folks out at a time. So bigger boats, I think, uh, you know, called head boats as well. I think cattle boats out on the, out on the West coast, Kenton, nope, I don't know if that offends you or not. Um, <laughs> but in any event, you know, read about this boat called the Bunny Clark, uh, up in a Gunkwit, Maine. Uh, you know, I think it was in Saltwater Sports and read this article about it with this, this captain Tim tower and all this, you know, all these huge cod and all this stuff. And, I remember, uh, I think I was 14. My mom drove me up there and we stayed at a hotel and uh, went down to the boat getting ready. And I saw this, uh, this spiky haired 20 year old walk down and say, hey, folks, I'm your captain. And uh, that was Captain <laughs> Gear. Uh, God, not 19 what, years ago. Now, was I, was uh, I 20 or was I 19 yeah. at the time? I think you were 20, 2002. So. Were you 20? I don't know what it was. Whatever it was, you were young and you looked it. Nobody thought you knew anything. <laughs> they still don't think. Pretty hilarious. They still don't and think. Then, I know you know, whenever it was. Well, whenever. Well, you know, and then you made the speech about you know we have these flies, these are mojos, blah blah. You know, uh, people get seasick on this boat. If you think if you're feeling sick, if you think you're going to get sick, ask us for a bucket. We all know what it means. Everybody laughed. Nobody was laughing. You know, three hours later. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've just, to, to this day, I've never seen one vessel wipe out so many people. Well, hold on, Clark, hold on. But, uh, let me, let me anyways, defend that's the, neither here nor there. Let me defend the oh, Bunny God. Clark, okay? Let me defend <laughs> the Bunny Clark. You know why the Bunny Clark is such a great fishing operation? Because they never fished to the weakest person on board. They fished for fish. Tim always ran that boat like a commercial fishing boat. And that's why they had such big catches, because... He always provided the absolute best tackle possible. To this day, he's got the absolute best tackle I've ever seen on charter boats. And two, he never he never worked to the weakest link. Instead, he made the weakest link step up. So, like, if you didn't know how to fish, we were going right. to teach you how to fish. So, yes, we would get people wildly seasick, right. but that's because we went for it every day. So, in my opinion, that is, like, one of the best, if not the best charter boats around because – they, you know, they, they fish, they, they fish for fish. They don't, they don't, they, they don't fish to take you on, you know, a pleasure cruise. If you, uh, I mean, it's fishing. So. You're not catching haddock in 120 feet of water. I, I fully agree. And that's, that's the draw, right? That's the draw of the bunny. And, uh, you know, caught some incredible fish with you over the years before, uh, but before you, you made your move and, and I made my move, but, um, you know, that was, 
that that was a real transformative time for me again, you know, seeing, seeing all these incredible fish and, you know, hearing about how cod had always been totally, you know, totally overfished, but seeing these 60 pound fish and, you know, now recognizing that that was in many ways, kind of the swan song, given what happened, you know, five, six years later, when, when we really saw a, a huge decline in those big spawning fish, but, you know, I mean, I, I think the bunny Clark and, and what I'm doing now, you know, Kenton, I mean, Tim, Tim really made his mark on releasing those big fish, you know, on, on being a, a, a quote unquote meat fishery that, that releases ground fish uh, and people would pay and they would go to get their picture taken with a 30 pound cod and throw it back. Uh, that's a, that's a pretty fundamentally different paradigm. And, you know, in the striped bass world, that's a pretty, that, that, that's a pretty common thing. Um, but to see it in other fisheries and it's been pretty damn cool to see other, you know, I see guys doing that now with Tatog and with big fluke, guys that catch a 12 pound fluke and, take a video of releasing it and put it on Instagram and get all sorts of attention. I mean, you know, that was a, a pretty pioneering element of the Bunny Clark and, uh, and what they were doing and really showing that, you know, meat on the deck is not always the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the desired or the best thing for the resource, not saying, you know, that there weren't plenty of people who wanted to kill all their fish, but I think that was, you know, that was pretty powerful for me to see as a, as a, young I kid was, on I boat. would say that boat was a trendsetter. And I would say a lot of what I learned on that boat, I have taken with me all over the world. I would like to mention, since you yadda yadda right over it, uh, do you still hold the junior world record? I do. I do indeed. Um, yeah, caught, caught, caught aboard the Bunny Clark with Captain Kenton Gear. That was 2003, man. Ooh, 18 years ago. Uh, that's amazing. But uh, yeah, what, 46 pounds, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, and it wasn't even, you know, like, it's, it's amazing. I think we were both joking like, oh, this will last a year, you know, like there was, there were big we fish. Were catching, around, you we were catching catch a lot of big fish and, back uh, then. Lo and behold, here we are. Yeah. Well, I think, I think I broke, I think you guys had had somebody catch like a 45 think, pounder the week before, right? It was like, I think it was right 44 and, and a half and that yeah. record. So that kid, you know, same thing. And that record only lasted like a week or two. And uh, the record before that had been on the books for like, I want to say it'd been like almost 20 years or something for the junior record. It'd been on the books for a really long time. And then we broke it again within like a week or two. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's amazing, you know, and not to digress again, but too late, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not an old guy, but I'm older than I used to be, as they say. Oh, damn it. You there, Willie? You there, buddy? Willie. So, yeah, Kenton, so as I was saying, you know, it's just, it's mind blowing to have seen how, how that fishery has changed over the years and people just don't have, you know, if you're coming of age in the fishery now, you just have a totally different perspective as to what a fishery will look like. And this gets back to that reference points conversation, right? About, you know, you, uh, if you spend enough time with a fishery in a, in a you know, in a, in a bad, in a bad place, that's going to become the new normal and nobody's really going to care anymore, uh, about trying to get it back. And so we need to hold our, our resources and our, and ourselves to a higher standard. We need to think about, you know, those, those freaking largemouth bass living in shopping carts, you know, and, and the resilience of our resources and, and give them a chance, give them a chance to show us what they can do. And so that's, you know, that's uh, something that really been eye opening for me now, having been, you know, in and around this world for 25 years. Um, so 
let's see. So where are we? So we were talking about the Bunny Clark. And then from there, as you mentioned, you know, went to Harvard, did my undergrad uh, downtown, uh, doing plenty of plenty of fishing on the weekends, hold over stripers in Boston. Uh, did did you do well in Harvard? I never, I never got the, I never got the straight answer on that. Did you actually do well in Harvard? Why did you ask my dad or my mom? I would probably dictate what the answer was. Oh, um, was there a, was it, was there a difference of opinion on that? No, there wasn't. I'm just joking. I just know that you have a a, a, a differing opinion. But anyways, um, well, no. I mean, I, I don't say I have different opinion, but 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 I just thought maybe. I mean, your mom and dad used to have different opinions on a lot of things. So that's that's why I was curious. <laughs> No, I did. You know, I, I did well. Um, I think I uh, it was pretty transformative for me. You know, I think it was it was good to be in a big pond and realize, you know, you're not going to be the best at everything and you need to kind of follow your passion and you need to make, do what makes you happy. I remember going in, wanted to do everything, wanted to do the best, getting overwhelmed and kind of focusing in. You know, I majored in history and minor revolutionary biology. I worked in the fish collection. So I was, you know, in a one point five million uh, specimen collection of fish in jars and, uh, you know, was helping to identify fish species and all that good stuff. And I was working in a fish biomechanics lab and, and writing freelance for a couple magazines and just kind of doing what made me happy and not, you know, not killing myself, really trying to, uh, to, to get the most out of it. So, you know, I did well on paper, but I, you know, I also was deliberately not doing, you know, not kind of doing the most pressure cooking type of, uh, type of curriculum if that makes sense because i wanted i wanted to learn i wanted to uh, i wanted to get the most out of it in a broader sense and so i i felt pretty good coming out you know it was a a great experience and 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 from there um (laughs) worked on a party boat for a bit out of college because you know that's what you do and um, yeah that's what you do (laughs) well i had to see how the other half lives you know so and i learned and i learned why uh i learned how to get snippy which was a good lesson for me um and i learned why snippy snippy you know, Kirk, whatever the word is, you know, one line, one line answers to people when you're working your third double in a, you know, your, your third double in a row or whatever. And um, you became, you became rude. Well, you know, people are cutting clam, you're cutting clams on the stern and somebody walks by and they go, mm, breakfast. And you're like, ha ha ha. You're like the 13th people who said, 13th person who said that to me in the last three days. Uh, you know, you kind of, I, I kind of understood, but I also understood, you know, balancing that with uh, recognizing that not everybody's out there every day and, and I'm not that special. Um, and so that, you know, that was a really fun experience uh, through all this. I was running a fishing camp and taking folks out on those boats, you know, with little eight to 13 year olds and, and showing them the way. So I've been, been prattling on for too long here, Kenton, as typically happens. So shut me up when, when the time comes. No, no, this but... is good. This is good. This is, this is what this podcast is all about. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, I, yeah. eventually I'd like you to get to uh, why you know anything about tunas and marlin and wh- why we should listen to you. I would like to get to that at some point. Yeah, that's fair. You know, uh, saving, saving, saving the, uh, the credibility stuff for the end. Uh, and hopefully people will just will just believe what I have to say. But uh, I'd also so, like to talk about your time with the uh, I'd also like to talk about your time with the Great Whites. My time with the Great Whites was very limited, but we are we are coming up on that in a second. And I'll be happy to get into okay. that. So, um, yeah, so after college, you know, spent some time kind of poking around, figuring out some different options, you know, figuring out really where I wanted to go. I think I spent the better part of a month with you back, uh, God, 10 years ago now, um, doing a couple of cross mount trips, which was pretty, pretty, pretty incredible and eye-opening to see what that fishery is like. Um, and, yeah, uh, and we definitely uh, determined, that's when we determined you're a paperwork guy. <laughs> oh, come on. I held my own. We did one trip, just you and me, remember? It wasn't that bad. Oh, I remember. 
Come on. I, I took I, I took first watch on the ride home. I thought that would have gotten me some brownie points, but here we are, and you know, all those uh all those good deeds have gone forgotten. All right. You know? All when right, I did bye, that, bye. I thought, you know, I'll be on a I'll be on a podcast with Kent Kenton in ten years and he'll say how tough and rugged I am because I'm doing this. And, yeah. You're, okay. you're the well, toughest guy. Uh, I'm sorry. You're the toughest guy I've ever seen, Willie. There you go. My bad. There you go. Appreciate it. Uh, Appreciate it. Um, so yeah. So after uh, after visiting Kenton, I did a couple a uh, couple stints in fisheries research. Was up at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute in Portland, Maine, uh, doing some bycatch reduction engineering work, uh, trying to figure out trawl fisheries that caught fewer flatfish, and also doing some some tagging of uh, of Atlantic wolffish to try to better figure figure those things out if folks don't know what those are they're a pretty gruesome looking uh elongated gray uh toothy bottom feeder uh up in the up in the northeast that eats a lot of sea urchins and scallops scallops and uh and lobsters and all sorts of good stuff and pretty pretty interesting animal and uh oh, they're and from awesome. there oh they're so cool and from there i went out to san diego and i was out there for about five months uh working with a nonprofit called the flager institute of environmental research uh, really, you know, was fortunate to, to be there just as they were starting some of their work in the uh, deep set buoy gear fishery for, uh, for swordfish. And the idea there was the, uh, the drift gillnet fishery that was, had predominated had a lot of bycatch and they were trying to find a way to, to reduce that. And so uh, I was really happy to help out these, these two great guys who I think you know, Kenton, uh, Chugi Sepulveda and Scooch Albers out there who were, were pioneering this work, you know, dropping these, dropping these squids down, uh, what, 900,000 feet during the daytime under buoys like they uh, do in Florida, but during, but, you know, during the daytime. So not, not shallow out like in Florida and, and being pretty successful and catching a lot of swordfish that way. Uh, it was pretty cool to be there just as that work was, was getting going. Uh, also doing some thresher shark tagging and looking at post-release mortality in the, uh, the recreational fishery. Cause again, rec fisheries have an impact. We wanted to see what it was. And uh, yeah, Kenton, when I was out there, one of the one of the big benefits of the work we were doing was got to go on a, a quote unquote research trip down to Guadalupe Island off of Mexico, um, and I, I didn't do much of the research. I was swimming with the white sharks a little bit, you know, cage diving, and I think they were taking some biopsies for some genetic work. But um, honestly, I you know I'd be lying if I if I didn't say that I was there diving with white sharks and then and then catching yellowfin off the stern of that boat uh, while guys would be in the cage and they'd poke their heads up and say, hey, we got fish in the slick, and then. I'd, uh, I'd drop a chunk out and catch a elephant. And it was especially exciting because the water, if anybody's seen photos of, of great whites, a ton of them are from Guadalupe because it's, um, it's incredible. The water is incredibly clear. It's like 90 to 100 foot visibility. And so, you know, those incredible shots, if there's a, a great white with a bunch of scads around it, it's probably from, it's, it's probably from there. And because of that, for to catch a elephant, you need to use like 40 or 50 pound fluorocarbon. So we were using this, this really light leader and uh, and then trying to keep keep away of a 110 pound tuna from a great white uh, that was hard charged and wanted to eat those fish. So that was a good good chance to test nos and see the strength of light of uh, white line. So, anyways, uh, had a great time doing that. And um, uh, what from there? What? Yeah. Hold on, let me interrupt you for a second. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe this is a different study. Is this the study where you guys were actually tracking the great whites and looking for how they were doing after the catch and release process? No, so I haven't done a study with uh, with great whites on that, Kent, and I don't think anybody's done it with uh, like explicitly because they're not targeted, right? You can't you can't keep them uh, recreationally, and I don't 
I don't know of any studies that have explicitly done that, but I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of like the shark tracker stuff and where they've been catching those sharks and putting those, those uh, smart positioning tags, the smart tags on them. And I think they're finding, you know, I, I would suspect that by virtue of the fact that those sharks are pinging up and down the coast, that they're seeing pretty high survivability uh, with those yeah. sharks. I know there were some exceptions out in, out in the Pacific. I think there were some issues, but I think by and large, they, they've been doing pretty well. Yeah, I, I thought, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it wasn't you that told me. I, I recall someone had said that they were tracking some of those sharks, and then they had found that when they actually went and dove in with them, that they, the ones that were hooked deep in their stomach, I think was the issue, were like starving to death. Yeah, there, there was a really widely circulated video of, uh, of a shark that had a big hook in its mouth that was like totally emaciated. Um, I, don't, I don't really know enough about that to, to, to really comment on it beyond that. I know there were some concerns in some of the early work there on the spot tagging. But, you know, the, the purpose of that work was largely around tracking. It wasn't around post-release survival. Um, you know, I, I would just say, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if, if you see a shark and it's moving around, I think, you know, this is something that we, we have to think about that's a kind of a, a tough conversation when it comes to post-release mortality, you know, which is just the percentage of, of, of fish or seabirds or whatever that, that die after you let them go. And of course, you know, that's an issue both in commercial and recreational fisheries. Um, you know, but one thing, you know, we think about it as binary, right? We think about it as this animal lived, this animal died, period. And that's it. But you have to think about those sublethal impacts, right? Those, you know, is this animal feeding effectively? Can it, can it still successfully reproduce? Can it, can it migrate into the most productive areas to, uh, you know, to, to achieve each of those? Uh, you know, there are a lot of other questions that are really tough to track down on on post-release mortality or on kind of you know post-release viability after fishing and those are you know that that's kind of a, a wide open area of research there's only so much that you can do in, in the in the open environment uh you can do things like put accelerometers on fish and kind of see what their swimming behavior looks like but as you've said unless you're getting in the water and looking at them it can be tough to uh, it can be tough to ascertain what's going on fair enough yeah so i'm gonna fast forward a bit and uh i think 2013 uh, started my, my PhD, actually went in as a master's student, but eventually decided to do a PhD at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science, which is part of William and Mary down in uh, Southern Virginia. So made the shift down there and spent uh, five years uh, working on the bluefin tuna fishery on the East Coast. So most of my work was focused on the, on the recreational fishery. So uh, it was a combination of, again, this, this post-release mortality work. So we were putting satellite transmitters and, and bluefin tuna um, in particular, the ones that were caught with uh, with light tackle. So it's you know, often called often called the jigging and popping fishery. So guys are are you know casting vertical jigs or they're, they're throwing poppers on on you know heavy spinning gear, conventional gear. They're catching these you know 50, 60, 70, 80 inch fish, uh, and it's largely a, a one fish per day limit. So a lot of those fish are getting let go. And so our question was. This fishery was kind of under the microscope because, you know, this is a highly valuable fish. And the question was, are these fish actually surviving with this lighter gear? And so we were putting satellite transmitters on those fish to, to get a bit better get a sense of that. And we, we had some issues with the tags. We had a little bit of failure with the tags. It was a new model. But the, the general takeaway is that those fish were doing pretty well. Um, we, of the 25 we tagged, I think we got data back from 16, as I recall. Um, and of those, all of them survived except for one. And that one was a, a little 46 incher that actually got eaten by a mako shark after a couple of days, um, which is pretty interesting to see. You know, you kind of see the tag that these tags have light, have a, a light temperature. Um, and uh, well, these tags just have a light and depth, uh, sorry, light and temperature sensor on them, no depth sensor. And you just saw the lights go out. 
Um, and it was pretty, you know, and the temperature kind of come up a little bit too, because uh, mako sharks are partially warm blooded and you were able to tell, well, this, this, this fish got eaten and the tag got regurgitated and we got that information. So generally speaking, saw that a bluefin, you know, a recreational bluefin tuna fishery can be pretty, can be pretty, uh, you know, not only economically viable if people want to do it, but also ecologically viable because because uh, those fish are doing pretty well. You know, it's obviously a small study. It's not the be all end all, um, but it's, it's the, you know, it's the evidence. And again, it's the best available science that we have right now. And so uh, that was a really cool study to do because we were working so closely with, uh, with, with charter captains up and down the coast. So I had, I was fishing with guys from, uh, from Massachusetts out of North Carolina, uh, just going out on, on charter boats and people who could deal with having me on there for a day. So it was a lot of fun. How often do you think that best available science is actually um, a detriment to fisheries because they're not asking the right questions or they don't have a big enough sample basis? A, well, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, best available science is a, it's a really, I don't want to say it's controversial, but I think the points that you raise are definitely valid ones. I think the question is, in the absence of that, what do you do, right? And so that's, that's a real challenge. You know, best is very much a subjective term. Um, I think it's deliberately that way because you don't want to tell anybody, you know, what's better than the other thing and, you know, in a, in a more prescriptive fashion. You know, as given my science background, Kenton, I tend to be supportive of that notion. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that best is not, you know, that there's that there can always, I, I would say, always be a better than best right now. You can always improve on the science. And just because we have something done doesn't mean that we don't need to continue working on it. Um, what, what's it, what's I think it, what's the, it, I, I think the, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think the absence of science can be a lot more damaging um, in a lot of cases on the balance, right? I'm not saying there might be specific cases. So, you know, if you have one study that shows something that's wrong and, you know, ends up creating a, an issue in the fishery, that's one thing. But I would say on the whole, um, having information to lean on that's peer reviewed and is, you know, is based on sound methods is better than kind of hedging on, on information that is, that is not, not gone through that process. In your own studies, how often would you cherry yeah. pick in your own studies? How, how often would you cherry pick the fish that you stuck tags in because you were worried about the cost of the tags? Uh, never. So that's, those are the kinds of things that we, you know, and these are the kinds of things that if I didn't say that in the article in the, in the publication, a reviewer would say, did you cherry pick these fish? They would say it in a more nerdy way, but they would ask that question. So our general rule was whatever this fish looks like, we're going to put a tag in it. The only exception when we wouldn't put a tag in a fish is when we'd have a double header. And the reason for that is that we're trying to, you know, we're trying to the best extent possible, get a random sample. And so if you're catching two fish at once, it's probably from the same school and those fish might've migrated, you know, from wherever together, it might be in a very similar condition. But other than that, you know, as you said, like we're, you know, we're trying to get the answers and obviously, you know, a lot of scientists are fishermen and, you know, I wouldn't have loved to find that 90% of bluefin tuna die, but that would have been what we found. And it's not my place to, to, you know, to do anything to, to change that. That's just a, a fact and something we have to think about. You know, the reason why science communication is so difficult. And I think you, I've probably done a lot of it in this, in this call is the, it depends factor. So, you know, for example, in my study, right, I mentioned that, um, I mentioned that a bunch of those tags didn't report, right? They, they, they failed. This was a new technology. And so the question becomes, what do you do with those failed tags? 
you know, because who knows, all those fish could have died. And then we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be able to say that. So in, in the paper itself, you know, we say, if you include these tags that didn't report as mortalities, and if you don't, and we kind of give the full range. Um, and so we, we always try to provide all of that information. I think the challenge with science communication is you're trying to balance accuracy with, you know, with, uh, with attention spans. And that can be really tough. Uh, you know, not only for the public, but also for managers, you know, for folks who don't only have, a, you know, a, a fixed amount of resources to devote to this issue. Um, so, again, I tend to have a pretty good faith view of the science. I think science can be weaponized in ways that are unfair and inappropriate. Um, but that becomes more of a management question than a science question. It's kind of where I where I'd go with that. How, how about the good old term peer reviewed? What are your feelings on that? Uh, I think peer review is important, Kenton. You know, it's, it's a lot better that this is a, a bad dad joke that my colleague likes to use, but he prefers peer-reviewed science to beer-reviewed science. And I think there's a lot of that out there. There's a lot of, you know, and anecdotal data does not mean bad data, but it, it means that it is not backed up by a larger body of evidence. And I think that larger body of evidence is really important, you know, and I think the fact that we don't have science on everything or that the science isn't showing you know, that's what folks are thinking is happening is not a failure of the science. It's a failure of, of, of the amount of science that's been done. And, you know, one good example of this that's going on right now is I don't know if you've been following what's going on in the Gulf of Mexico with this great red snapper count. Um, basically, there was a, Congress uh, mandated a new study to look at the numbers of red snapper. And I'm not a red snapper expert. So don't, you know, don't I'm not going to get too much into the weeds of this, but I will mention, you know, Basically, there was a mandate to do a new stock, a new stock assessment of red snapper. And there was an allocation of $10 million to do this study. The typical red snapper stock assessment costs about $3 million. And the new stock assessment actually showed some pretty amazing data. It showed that, you know, again, this hasn't gone through all the peer review and all that stuff. And, you know, I, I don't know how much that'll change things, but it showed there are about three times more red snapper in the Gulf of Mexico than were previously thought. And the reason for this is that a lot of those fish were, were out over open muddy bottom. You know, you think a red snapper like you would, you know, like Pollock or something like you know, they're, they're structure oriented. Maybe Pollock's a bad example. You're the, you're the party boat captain, but Amberjack, but uh, you know, they, they found a ton of them out in, out in the mud where they weren't looking and they weren't looking because they didn't have the resources to look. And so you can look at that as, you can look at that in two different ways, right? On the one hand, you can say, wow, this is great. We got more resources. And by virtue of having more money to do a more accurate assessment, we got a result that actually shows there are a lot more fish out there. Wow, look at the power of, you know, look at the power of science and, and look how much resources can impact this. The other side of this is to demonize the National Marine Fisheries Service and imply some sort of, you know, political or conspiratorial way to, to let people catch less fish. And unfortunately, a lot of the dialogue we're hearing is in that latter category. And, you know, knowing how science works, it just it's if you have if you have more money, you're going to be able to, to do more sampling. You're going to be able to look at a broader area. And in my mind, it just shows, you know, it doesn't show that that NIMS is bad. It shows that we need more money for research. That's my takeaway. And wouldn't it be great if we could get Congress to appropriate more money for stock assessments? Um, and so that's kind of where I see a lot of the, the scientific challenges is, is in resources. You know, a lot of these people are stretched really thin. A lot of them are funded by grants more than they are by salary. Uh, there's a lot of challenges. And, you know, these, these are not, you know, people doing this research are not necessarily tenured professors sitting in their ivory tower kind of cherry picking what research they want. It's hardworking people who want what's best for the resource, um, but they only can work with what they have. And, uh, 
and that's a tough position to be in. In in the science community, how often do does how often does research get thrown away because it doesn't uh, meet the people that are paying for the grants agenda? I have heard this many times from people that said they've worked on projects and then it either wasn't ever published or nothing became of it because it didn't meet uh, the people that were backing its agenda. How often do you think that happens? That's interesting. Um, I've heard of cases where research wasn't funded because of the fear of what it would show. Um, I'm in no way denying what you're saying, but I don't know firsthand any of those examples, Kenton. It's probably also not surprising because you probably aren't going to hear a lot about them unless it happened to that person. Um, you know, you're, you're not wrong at all. I think there are certainly cases where a group might be funding research and it, you know, the result might not be what they want. Again, our perspective at ASGA is the science is the science. We want to, you know, this is, this is the best available information to limit it all, although it might be, as we've discussed, and we need to use it. Um, I've seen studies cut off the knees because, you know, there was concern about what they'd show um, I, or, or about what the implications would be. Um, but I have not heard people say we can't communicate these results. Um, you know, I'm not at all denying it happens. I'm sure I'm sure it does happen in some cases. Um, but it's, you know, that's uh, it's a, it's a, whichever the case, uh, if, if it is happening, it is a very serious problem because, you know, science is based. It's predicated on transparency. Right. It's predicated on on facts and uh that's that's important. And, you know, there's always going to be subjectivity in choosing what research that you fund. And that's why I'm saying what I'm saying about, you know, uh, grants that are selected by for funding like that. That, in my mind, would be the bottleneck in terms of that selectivity. Um, I think it's rare for a group to throw its money behind something and then and then not come forth with the results. And I think if they did, there would be a huge amount of uproar from the scientific community, you know, because I, I think because basically at that point, what does the. Uh, what does the grantee have to lose? Like they've done all this work and now we're not going to be able to disseminate it. So I know that was kind of a wishy-wanty answer, yeah. but I, I appreciate the concern. Well, it, it sounds like someone who's trying to dodge that conversation, honestly. How, 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 much, <laughs> how much of the science that we see today is paid by private organizations and versus go federal government? Like how dependent are most scientists on, on needing these outside grants? That's a great question. Um, Speaking as a fishery scientist, most of like the big money that I look for is coming from the federal government. And, you know, it's also important to recognize that while, you know, for most grants that I've applied for, while like the general priorities might be might be established by the by the grantor, the actual project is the is the is the is the grantees idea, right? It's the scientists idea. That's generally how it doesn't say, hey, we want to do a, we don't want to do a study on, you know, on, uh, I don't know, blue marlin post-release mortality here or there. And like, you know, who wants it? It's more like, hey, we want to do, you know, this is a call for funding for, you know, this broad area of conservation, you know, for uh, reducing bycatch or for innovative gear types or for some, you know, it, it's a much broader conversation. Um, so most of the big, most of like the big funding that, that I'm familiar with comes from, uh, comes from federal sources. There are large sources of private funding out there as well. I think a lot of folks, a lot of folks look to private funding as well for like supplemental, supplemental income for, uh, for certain projects that are already underway. But, you know, I, I can't think of a ton of work in the fisheries space uh, in, in, in my world that, 
that really you you look exclusively to uh, to those groups. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Let me ask you this, and this is something I I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I you know I, I want to know because as we were talking about all this stuff, and you've got experience with satellite tagging tunas, you also have experience with uh, satellite tagging white white marlin, correct? Can you tell us about that? Because I've got some follow-up questions concerning my striped marlin concerns that I want to ask you. So I think they're a very similar fish as far as size and everything. So can you tell us about your, uh, your, your, your uh, white marlin tagging? Yeah, I'm happy to. And yeah, they're very close related to striped marlin. So your concerns are, are well warranted. Um, So this was a study that I was part of when I was in grad school. It wasn't, it wasn't my study. It was led by, by my advisor, Dr. John Graves, who folks in the billfish world might know, I might know of he was part he was uh he and his student Andre Hordisky were really the two guys who found how dramatically circle hooks reduced post-release mortality in the white marlin fishery and it led to the voluntary adoption of those hooks by a lot of guys. Um and so basically the, the purpose of the study, Kenton, was to look at the effect of air exposure on post-release mortality. Uh this this is another good example of you know regulation versus how people actually behave. So you're not allowed to take white marlin or any other highly migratory species for that matter out of the water if you're going to let them go. The whole idea there is that you don't beat the fish up. Um, and yet, if you look on social media or if you Google white marlin, you're going to see a whole lot of pictures of folks lifting, you know, with, with the fish in the cockpit, holding it up for a hero shot and then saying the fish was safely released. Right. And so the, the fundamental question there that, that's was, true as well with all those fish that have- sail fish, everything. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm thinking mainly Atlantic highly migratory species, Kenton. I think it's a nationwide law, but I don't want to I, I don't want to commit too far. Definitely the case all through the. Atlantic so even a tuna, you pull a tuna out of the um, water, highly migratory species for a photo and let it back. That's illegal. Uh, yes, if it's yes, if it's uh, if it's a legal size. So, and again, so did is, you have you know, to have a special permit then for your say, tags to be able to pull them out of the water? I did. Yeah, I. I Yep, I had an exempted fishing permit for my stuff. Um, exactly. So, you know, this is no different than like, you know, the Goliath grouper and tarpon stuff down in Florida where you're supposed to keep those fish in the water. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's one of those things where, you know, how, how much can you enforce it really, right? Unless somebody's posting it on social media. But I think a lot of this is really trying to message to people the importance of keeping these fish in the water for conservation. You know, one of the big questions coming out of this was, well, does this really have an impact? Is this really doing anything to these fish? Um, and so we put 18 satellite tags on on uh, white marlin uh, that we, we had. So John and Andre had previously tagged, I think, 61 fish or some big number, uh, you know, that they had caught with circle hooks, leaving those fish in the water. And they had an incredible survival rate. I think 1.7% of fish died. I think like one out of 61 fish died, something like that. And so we already had our control group. So we we, we tagged 18 fish with differing air exposure levels of one minute, three minutes, and five minutes. And so we, I think we did six fish for each of those treatments. And uh, we found a pretty dramatic decline in, in survival. Uh, I'm not sure if I can remember the numbers offhand, but I think none of the one-minute fish died. Um, and maybe one or two of the three-minute fish and, and three and like four of the six five-minute fish. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was a pretty dramatic increase in mortality rate with um with air exposure and again it's a small study um but it was pretty eye-opening to folks like you take these things out of the water and you know as i'm sure you know like if you put a timer things often move move more quickly than you think when you're excited and you're uh you're dealing with those fish like you know uh one minute seemed very quick 
five minutes did seem pretty long, but at the same time, it was something that we could have seen happening, right? If people are all excited, and, you know, you think about when the fish's head comes out of the water to when it to when it goes back in the water, right? Everything that goes on between then. So, um, yeah, I mean, long story short, we found a big impact. Again, this had no impact on regulations because the, the, the rules were already on the books, but the goal was basically now here is our outreach tool to communicate to folks the importance of keeping these fish in the water. And so we had articles in saltwater, uh, I think in Sport Fishing Magazine and Marlin Magazine, uh, obviously the peer reviewed study. Uh, we did, you know, we gave talks at all sorts of academic conferences as well, just trying to get the word out that, you know, this isn't just a, you know, this isn't just a, a paper law out there for no reason. There's an actual, you know, there's an actual reason for this. So that's, that, that's a brief background on, on that study. So I guess this is one of my questions and um, because I'm troubled with the striped Marlin thing that's happening out here and, you know, the fishery out here roughly catches 13,000, harvested 13,000, 12, 12 to 13,000 uh, fish per year. And talking about the commercial correct. fishery? That's the commercial fishery. fishery. Okay. And um, the, the uh, you know, the peer-reviewed uh, best available science has less than 30 striped marlin with satellite tags. Does that seem like too small of a sample size for you? Um, so that's a good question. More is always better, Kenton. Um, that, that's my, my short answer that that is a small sample. You know, what you have to look at here is the confidence intervals, right? I don't want to get too sciencey here, but like, you know, the, the fewer samples you have, the greater your uncertainty. And so it would be important to look at like what the confidence intervals there are, you know? So like, if you have a number that's 20%, like what's, what's the window around that? And that's certainly a qualifier that we have in our stuff. I well, think 30 we'd be well is short of that. 30 is a guideline. I said we'd be well What's short that? of that. Yeah. So, I mean, 30 is definitely, you know, it, it's it's nothing to sniff at. I, I wouldn't say that it's, you know, the final word, but it's, again, it falls into that best available science category. And I got a feeling that's where you're going with this. Because was it? if you could tell me more, I'd be interested to hear about the, is this about like a post-release mortality Well, study? I'm just kind of troubled. They're, they're using best available science and, um, they're using best available science, but I just don't think that I don't think the uh, the science is anywhere near inclusive enough. And anytime I've mentioned any of my concerns, to anyone, they just say, oh, we don't have the money. It's this or that. And I just feel like it's you know, I'm going to be honest. It's the first time like I've been going to the fishery meetings. Uh, my, you know, since I was 13 years old. It's the first time I've ever felt like, wow, like these people don't care about fish. They only care about business. I hate to say that, but man, it's the first time in my life I've ever really felt that way. I always thought like, oh, you know, we got to give everyone a chance, but I just, you know, I just have seen it. I've been here long enough firsthand where there's just less and less striped marlin. The recreational guys catch less striped marlin and it just, you, you know, like I, I, it's one of these things where it, it's heartbreaking to me that, you know, ultimately it comes down to a budget decision versus, you know, what's really best for the fish. And so I, I've been troubled with this one recently. It's the first time I've ever really felt it firsthand, you know? Yeah. No, that's no, I, I appreciate you bringing it up and I'm going to qualify everything I say. This is not based on what's going on with, with stripeys. Cause I don't, I don't really know much about that fishery at all. Um, you know, a, a couple thoughts. And, you know, the first one would just be an exercise. Like if those 30 tags showed a different number that were more favorable to, to kind of wait, what you're thinking, do you think those people would still find a way to contort that, into uh into an action that's kind of the first question i know it's counterfactual but it's an, it's an important one right because i think you know what we often deal with is people and i'm not talking about 
government. I'm talking about stakeholders. People love to support science that supports their views, and they and they love to basically try to discredit science that opposes their views. And I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but I'm saying that I'd be one. I, I on their side, it would be interesting to see. You know, if the study were different, would 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 there be efforts to oppose it? Well, I, I would say I'll just yes say, because you know, already they had. Yeah. A, already okay. they had a, their proposal was for 2022 to give themselves even more quota than what's already been considered unsustainable it just feels like kind of that that what you said before it kind of feels like moving the goalposts to me it feels like they're more concerned about keeping fishing versus what's best for the fish and uh i mean admittedly i have right. emotional attachment i love marlin a lot of people love marlin so i, I think that's you know i think that uh i think i've been just i i, I feel like i i've been kind of dissuade by the term best available science because you know just from what i've seen in real life versus what they're saying i just i i've never experienced that the fishermen i've been interviewing they 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 don't see those numbers they don't you know so i think that's why for the first time i've ever really yeah. kind of been like what's going on here that's why i'm asking so many questions yeah no i no it's a good question and i know things are different out there too kenton like you know, we'll deal with it on the international level where the science will be saying one thing and ultimately the decision will go somewhere else, um, which is extremely frustrating. But it sounds like in this case, it's more like the science is saying something and, and you don't think that that's that's the case. And that's a much trickier thing um, to kind of unravel. Um, I personally like I can't really think of an example of having experienced that um, to that level. Right. Because we typically think of the science as, you know, you know, and I also I want to mention one other thing that's really important, right? And this is I got at this earlier, but you need to remember that you know, science gives you uh, alternatives, right? Science doesn't tell you one thing to do. It it, it kind of it, it frames the conversation around what the man you know what management actions are out there, right? So you talked about like slot limits, you know, size limits for striped bass earlier, right? Like we might have an, a, a set of alternatives for striped bass, but like the degree of of risk you want to take. For the, to the resource, that's a management question. Um, and so I think it, it's just important to keep that in mind where it's like, you know, regardless of what the science says, the decision of how much risk you're willing to assume for the long-term health of the fishery, is it's, it's a decision that's going to be made by separate people. And so that's really the, where you need to put the pressure. And that's something that we deal with a lot. And I think, you know, for that reason, it's important to keep the science and management separate where you can, because you don't want to, you know, you, you don't want to have these these concerns that you're talking about, where you know, is the science being is the science being colored by what's going on on the management side, and you know, I think where we tend to operate, and I think where you operate as well, is you know, here here are the alternatives that are based on the science. Which one do we choose? And you know, some of those might be more or less favorable to what we view as important to the resource, right? As we're talking about resource health if resource health is, is the north star then that's th those that's the alternative that we should choose right you might have multiple steady states in the fishery um but some might be riskier than others and you know in my mind a lot of that comes back to the range of options that are shown by the science so i just wanted you know i i know this is these are things you know but i just wanted to take a second to pause because it's something that i kind of learned a lot about coming out of grad school i was like wait a minute like you know these look like science questions but they're not they're their, their, their management questions that are couched in the science that's being provided. Um, the other thing, you know, I, the other thing I'll just mention, this is not me foisting the blame, but just kind of, you know, contextualizing a bit, and you know more about it than I do, but striped marlin are another species that are internationally managed, right? And so I think this is something that, that we deal with. We're like, you know, if we have a quota increase for a species, 
um, because of an international change and we don't agree with the international chain, like, you know, what do we do with the folks who are on the ground implementing that in the U.S., right? Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but like if, you know, WCPFC increases, white, increases striped marlin, like, is it the U.S.'s fault for then following along with that? Um, you know, our opinion is generally like, no, they should. Uh, yes, it is their fault. Like they should hope they should hold their fishery to a higher standard. Um, and a lot of that is also based in, you know, Magnus and Stevens. But that's the other part to think about here as well as the international component. Well, I mean, I think that's one of the things I've been frustrated with is that the 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 go to seems to be the commercial. The foreign guys are doing it worse. So why should we do it better? Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I think I, that's, I think, I, I think that's a lousy narrative yeah, that, just because someone's. Yeah. You can't use somebody else's bad behavior to justify your lack of, be, your lack of action or your own bad behavior. Right. And I think that's, you know, I mean, it's a fundamental challenge of a shared resource that these fish swim across international waters, but it doesn't negate the need for you to do your part, you know, not to, not, not to get too meta here, Kenton, and I, I'll bring it right back, but like, you know, a lot of the climate change stuff, right. It's like, oh, we can blame it all on China or something. But, you know, I, I think you it, it's kind of, it's a yes and discussion, right? It's like, yes, you know, this country is doing a big a big deal. But that, you know, and we need to we need to do our part. You know, it's we we, we need to be, be effective stewards of the resource, uh, and, you know, while in parallel working to, to bring other nations in, in line. I think you, you can't. You can't just, you know, foist the blame and, and go on business as usual. You need to be part of the solution. Again, this is no different than what we were talking about with the commercial recreational stuff, right? Oh, we're going to let this fish go and a dragger is going to swoop it up, right? Like that's, that's a, it's a very similar narrative. Um, but you, you can't let that like get in the way of doing what's best for the resource at whatever level. So, you know, I think there are a lot of parallels there. Well, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I don't want everything that we talk about to sound so negative because that's what happens so often when we talk about <laughs> I know uh, or just fishing yeah. in general when we start talking about regulations and we start talking about the, the state of our oceans and politics and all that gets really ugly well, I, I don't want to end it like that so I want to tighten this up a little bit and let's talk about Willie the fisherman and not so much Willie the uh, yeah the uh, heartless scientist here. Um, I mean, I, I know it's, I know it's the morning for you, but it is five 30 on a Friday for me. So maybe that, you know, that'll, that'll lighten the mood a bit. Over well, yeah, well. I think, I think so. I mean, um, what, 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 let's, let's talk about your own <laughs> personal fishing. Like you fishing has taken you all over the world. I I've seen you travel and you love to fish. Uh, where's your favorite place to fish? Oh, that's a good question. No, that's what I did. Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, my favorite place to fish. I have to say the uh, the Great Barrier Reef was pretty special, being able to go out there and see that whole scene um, and understand the, you know, like see those giant trevally on those bonnies and, and coming up. That was pretty incredible. Um, you know, that being said, I, I think, God, I love – I love the, uh, the Gulf of Maine and the backside of the Cape. And I think that, you know, that area in the Northeast and having learned a little bit about that bluefin tuna fishery up there in Kenton, where you've got these, these huge fish in like 20 to 40 feet of water that are coming in and eating this bait. I mean, you know, I, I think what, what's so incredible to me about that fishery is not even, you know, the 
just remarkable scenes of, you know, striped bass and bluefin tuna eating sand eels and half beaks and mackerel and bluefish and all these other things. But it's the fact that it's happening like in the backyard of like an incredibly populated area. Um, you know, that, that fishery is right. It's right there. It's like right by Boston. It's right by New York city. Uh, it's, it's just, just seeing, seeing the, the volume of life that, that comes up right there is always kind of blowing my mind. And it's like, you know, it's an hour and a half from where I grew up. It's literally in my backyard. So that's been a pretty phenomenal place to go back to, um, you know, and, and just be able to, to see change over time and, and, uh, and be part of that resource. That's been one of my favorite things to see. So there's kind of a, a, a glamorous example of like the giant Trevally and, and seeing that whole scene on the Great Barrier Reef. I know in, in some of your old stomping grounds, but then also a, a much more local example. Um, and of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the, uh, you know, the fact that, that visiting you basically ruined tuna fishing for life for me. Um, after having spent countless nights on party boats on the, you know, on the East Coast fishing the canyons and being lucky to catch one or two yellowfin a night. And then going out there and, you know, um, just getting settling into this routine with you of, you know, jigging 60 to 70 pound big eyes and learning how that whole thing works. And just, you know, it, it, that really does give you hope, you know, to see to see that life and that vitality. Um, and I know that, you know, you've seen things change as well. And that, you know, that gives you pause and, you know, um, you know, cause for pessimism as well. But, you know, for somebody just coming into it, I mean, it was it was pretty incredible to uh, to see that. So. Those are a couple examples of things that really, uh, really well, those, jumped out of it. Yeah, no, I mean, well, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's funny, you know, and of course I'm mentioning people, you know, I've been talking to people that a lot of people have been fishing with me, but yeah, you know, we are very lucky in Hawaii. We have an incredible resource and I just want to make sure we can keep it that way. Um, I mean, we are, we are talking about stripies. So we, you know, I probably would be remiss depending on who listens to this, if I didn't mention the Galapagos, <laughs> which I know you and I had the great pleasure of visiting. What and two years total, ago now. To and, um, the, totally the different biomass the, though. What, what's what, that? What, what, let's keep that in mind. Uh, Cause I, you know, I had Carrie Chen on here. Um, yes. Uh, the day before. Yeah. And, you know, he was talking about that, the same biomass that's on that side. It's a completely different stock. They don't, you know, they don't even, they don't even look like the same fish. Even their small ones there are three times as big as our average one, you know. And if you ever wanted um, two of my my dear friends and colleagues, Kenton, are, are, are the geneticists who did a lot of that work on, on striped marlin genetics and population structure. So if you ever wanted ever wanted some more perspective on some of that work, um, that, that could, those, those could be future guests for you as well. Because that's one of the things I hear that. people argue. Yeah. They say, oh, they're not a different stock. And having fished over there and fished over here it's very easy for me to say just looking at it it looks very different i mean i mean anyone's seen yep and i mean that's and we'll we'll, we'll get back to fun stuff but you know that, that these are huge questions around fisheries right is the idea of stock structure right like what are independent isolated populations on a, from a reproductive frame point framework and uh you know because you, ideally you're managing each one of them right. separately right so you know, in the Atlantic, we have six different spawning stocks of striped bass. We have two different spawning stocks of bluefin tuna, you know, but they're all mixing together and it's really hard to manage that. So understanding where fish are coming from is, is, a, is a huge part of the challenge. I, so, I agree. Um, oh, go ahead. But hey, I, I also, yeah. No, I was going to say just get, getting back to kind of fun stuff. I wanted to mention, I know we, you know, we got derailed by the by the glitz and glam of bluefin tuna because who wouldn't? But the other part of my PhD that I think might be of interest is, you know, I did a lot of work on on studying fishermen too, not just studying fish. 
uh, a lot of it was focused on recreational anglers and trying to put dollar values, you know, talking about what you were saying earlier about the economic impact and, you know, trying to get a sense of what we call the human dimensions of fisheries, right? So how much is it, what are, what are the motivators for, for getting out in the water? Do you want to catch stuff? Do you just want to be, you know, with your family or see wildlife? And how important is it for you to catch big fish versus little fish versus harvesting or catching and releasing and all these different elements, you know, you can put dollar values on all of those. And, uh, you know, a lot of that's, you know, it's rigorous stuff. It, it relies on surveys of fishermen, um, but it's really important research and it's kind of been neglected in particular by managers. So we're, we're really trying to elevate that work. Certainly our, our organization has been, has been beating the drum on that and trying to get the word out and uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes, but I, I think it's really cool because it's a great way to kind of, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that kind of ends up being anecdotal, right? You know, the idea of like, oh, I, you know, everybody wants to kill fish. Everybody wants to release fish. But if you're able to, to bring some, bring some research into it, you're kind of able to put a, you know, a, a finer point on that question and leave, and leave a little less subjectivity in mind. So um, that was just one thing I wanted to mention. And then the, just the, the last piece of me talking about myself and then I'm done, I promise is uh, before I joined ASGA, I spent a year on Capitol Hill as a, uh, as a Sea Grant fellow with Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts. So was able, that, that's kind of the last time I, wear a suit, I wore a suit, if we're being honest, uh, was back in 2018. And I was um, working on, on fisheries and coastal issues at the U.S. Senate. So that was a pretty, pretty eye-opening, eye-opening experience to see how, you know, a lot of these nitty-gritty issues are elevated at that level of, you know, of, uh, of, of superficiality, for lack of a better word, you know, when you're, you're talking, you know, in, in a much, much, much broader sense about these incredibly complex issues. So I think getting a sense for how, how that, how the information gets elevated, you know, to, to the highest levels of governance is, is pretty. Yeah. Pretty so like, what was your job over there? You had to hand the envelopes of cash to different people or how did that work? <laughs> no, I did not hand a single envelope of cash to anybody. Thank you though. Um, no, I was, so, uh, NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has this great fellowship program for people after they finish their, their graduate degree. Uh, and about 12 to 15 uh, uh, former graduate students end up on Capitol Hill for a year. And so it's basically a marine policy fellowship. So you're paid for a year to be, you know, for all intents and purposes, a staffer uh, of an elected official. Uh, and so I was working with Senator Markey, who's from Massachusetts, which, as we've discussed, is my home state. So I was able to work on a whole bunch of fisheries stuff, right? We had some, some recreational fisheries legislation that was going through, a lot of work on right whales, um, a, lot of, a lot of wind turbine work. And I don't know if we want to go down that road. Well, that's a whole well, other thicket. But, I mean, that's a uh, new thing about the face of Hawaii, <laughs> Andrew. What are, your thoughts on the, what, what are your thoughts on wind farms yeah. and stripers? And let's hear it. Yeah, no, I'm happy to. Yeah, so, I mean, ASGA doesn't have a form, form position yet on, uh, on offshore wind, uh, but I will say, you know, my personal view is that, you know, this stuff is, this stuff is coming here on the East Coast, Kent, and I know you guys are a bit earlier along there, but we've, you know, the, the conversations around offshore wind have been going on for, for decades now on the East Coast, and folks are getting very energized right now because it's becoming very real, um, but the reality is that these conversations have, have been happening for a long time. Um, the first project that's probably going to go in the water is going to be Vineyard Wind, which is actually where I tagged a bunch of my bluefin tuna uh, south of uh, south of Martha's Vineyard back in 2016. And so, you know, it's it's going into areas where we know there, you know, there's been life in the past. And that, that isn't the case everywhere. And there have been efforts to to minimize impacts. But right now, uh, at last count, I think we have 16 lease areas on the East Coast uh, covering an area roughly the size of Delaware. So that's, you know, a couple thousand turbines in the water. 
Um, you know, these are going to be generating a ton of energy, a ton of renewable energy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you know, from a fisheries perspective, first off, they, they might attract a lot of fish, right? They might be giant fish aggregate, aggregating but, devices in the water but, and be a huge fish. But hold on a second. But, because, because I saw one proposal, and correct me if I'm wrong, I've seen one proposal that people wouldn't be allowed within two miles of them. I, I just saw that, that going around. So I, I don't know if that's the same with what you're looking at, but that was one proposal I heard passing around that there'd be like a two mile restriction. I've been told, and maybe you can correct me, that a big part of the 3030 was to take advantage of these marine protective zones to stick windmills in them. Um, I have not heard that about 30 by 30. And I know that, you know, there's going to be a lot more on that conversation once the uh, once a lot of the public comments from the executive are kind of gone through. Um, but when it comes to the turbines themselves, our understanding, and we've chatted with folks at your uh, Bureau of Offshore Energy, Ocean Energy Management uh, to get a sense of this, is that it's under the authority of the Coast Guard um, and that there's really no ability for anybody to restrict to, re to restrict the ability for folks to go in those turbine arrays. Um, I think there might be the, the power substations might be an exception. Another issue that we're kind of grappling with is like, what if something bad happens, then are we going to be restricted, right? These are all issues that we're kind of working through. Um, but as of right now, it's uh, people are allowed to go right up to them. You know, we have we have five turbines off of Block Island right now where people are catching fluke and sea bass and all sorts of good stuff. There's another two off of Virginia Beach uh, that are offshore. And so I think, you know, on the one hand, Kenton, there's opportunities. Um, you know, for fishing, you know, for, for, you know, artificial reef effect, all that good stuff. On the other hand, you know, there's a lot we don't know about these things. Um, you know, there's been some work done in Europe. Obviously, they're way more ahead of, of, uh, uh, of a lot of this, but it was also, to my understanding, done a lot more unilaterally and with not as much input from the fishing industry as, it, as it's going to be, as it's going to be done here. And so, you know, our general concern, Kenton, is that the, the pace of development is really outpacing the science. Um, you know, to your point around kind of political, political influence here. And our concern is that we need to get we need to get the science in place. And I know science has been a hot topic today. And, you know, it's probably what you expect talking to me. But there's just a lot we don't know. We, we don't know a lot about how these turbines are going to affect, you know, um, primary productivity, you know, the amount of algae in the water um, and, and all the all the all the predators that that, that might attract. Uh, we don't know about impacts on big oceanographic features so like the Mid-Atlantic cold pools, this layer of cool water in the, in the Mid-Atlantic bite that has a big impact as well. Um, you know, we don't know about the, the, the noise, about the uh, electromagnetic frequency. There are some studies that have been done and, you know, there, but there's also a lot more work to be done. And there are also what about kind of separate issues. Now, I guess the other piece here that I should mention. Yeah, seabirds are, I think there's been a fair amount of work on seabirds and I think they're they're trying to cite them so that they're far enough offshore that the impact will be minimized. Um, but I also want to just emphasize that, you know, there are legitimate concerns from both the commercial and the recreational industry around safety, around being able to navigate through these things, around, uh, you know, radar interference. There, there are lots of questions there as well um, that, that folks are trying to address. Uh, you know, for us, you know, we'll be, we'll, we'll, you know, I'm sure be engaging at some point in a, in a more, you know, in a more explicit fashion. I think at this point, most of our concerns are more around the resource than they are around the industry. You know, as I've said, that's kind of our main focus. You know, and one big question that I have, Kenton, is, you know, it's one thing to say these are going to damage the resource. And it's another thing to say that these are going to shift the resource, right? And so I think, you know, if 
I think there was a study in Europe that showed that these that like Todd and Herring like don't like to be near these turbines because, um, you know, because like because the noise, maybe that was during construction. I don't remember particular. But, you know, the question is, does that mean that, you know, the cod are less reproductively viable and it's a it's a bad long term effect? Or does that mean that the cod goes somewhere else where, you know, maybe they're less accessible to fishermen or something else, but like the, the net impact on the resource it isn't as high? I think there are questions like that that still remain to be answered. So, you know, I personally am very involved in what's called the Responsible Offshore Science Alliance, which is a, you know, which is a group uh, here on the East Coast. It's, it's national, but lots, lots of the focus right now is on the East Coast just because so much is going on. Really trying to figure out what, what baseline science we need in place what kinds of monitoring we need to do. I mean, the other question is, you know, we've got all these trawl surveys and, you know, a, a lot of the sampling is going to be affected by all these turbines in the water. So how do you calibrate your, your fishery dependent, your fishery independent sampling and make sure your stock assessments continue to be viable and, and consistent with previous years. So there's a lot going on with wind. Uh, we're trying to catch up, you know, and, and stay on top of it all. Uh, but there's a lot of uncertainty, you know, and that's scary, right? I mean, these are the, by virtue of putting these things in the water, you're going to, you're going to potentially have a big impact. And so we're trying to weigh the potential benefits with a lot of these concerns and really hope that science will got our way, but we need to make sure that that work is getting done before a lot of the, uh, you know, uh, before these structures are having impacts. And well, that's very interesting because that actually, that kind of changes my opinion on one part. If you're saying that the guys can still go right up to them. Well, <clears throat> I mean, they're going to be a fucking eyesore, no doubt around Hawaii, but, you know, one thing I was concerned about, and I'm still concerned about the seabirds, right? So um, one, one thing is that yeah. our seabirds, uh, you know, lots of them are already endangered, okay? And so we put them out there, yeah. and they're going to attract fish around them, right? You're, they're going to be fads for our, our, our fishery, no doubt. You're going to have bait. Everything's going to stack up around these things. Well, where do the seabirds go? And are you to one, one question, are they going to be floating over there, right? right? Be floating yep. so you're going to build up the pelagics, yeah. you're going to have your bait stock build up around it. Well, where are the birds going to go? The birds are going to go where yeah. the fish are, right? So if there's fish hanging around these things, and, and a bunch of our birds are endangered, and you know you know me, I love birds, well, how many seabirds are going to die for, the, you know, how many seabirds are going to die just trying to do their natural thing when so many of them are already endangered, you know? Um, it does, it does make me, yeah. it does make no, me happier a, to hear that great... you're, what you're saying is that right now people are allowed to go up to them because one thing I had heard going around was that there was going to be a restriction ban. Like there's certain places over here already where you're not allowed to go into the, into the zone, right? The military zone or whatever. Um, but you have to call to have permission to yeah. go in and everything. And so I had heard from that one thing, that, that was one thing that was on the table. So I mean, if people can still go up to them and fish, that's great because I don't want to lose any more fishing grounds. But I truly am concerned about the impact on the seabirds because I just don't think you're going to avoid hurting these endangered seabirds because, I mean, look, half of them are going to try and land on the damn thing. And it's got a, a spinning prop. So what yeah. does that mean, you know? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. You know, we don't we don't have albatrosses here, right? So like, it's not something that we've you know th that I personally well, thought about. And I know that Audubon yep. has been very active over here. Um, I don't know about over there. If you guys, I'm sure you guys have plenty of folks well, who are who are looking at the. I think the war. I think the war has really just started. Um, honestly, but, yeah, 
Yeah, no, I honestly like, you know, I've been keeping pretty close track of what's going on. And, you know, I've heard about some of the floating stuff on the West Coast, but not as much out there. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, you raise legitimate concerns. And I think, you know, maybe there it's not it's not just the albatross, though. People don't realize, like, even, you know, like the little storm petrols that you saw, like that people take take, you know, take for granted, like on the East Coast. Well, well, we have them out here and that they're endangered. You know, there's a lot of people don't realize how bad so many, how how endangered a lot of the birds we have are. A lot of the seabirds are in a lot of trouble, Um, but people kind of take it for granted because when they're fishing, they see them on a regular basis. But their habitat, they're already dealing with huge habitat destruction. Right, right. No, it's a a great point. Definitely something I hope you'll you'll be elevating because I think... You know, so over here we have this responsible offshore science alliance and we have and that's focused on fisheries. And then we have a separate group, which I believe is called the Regional Wildlife Science Entity, RWSE. And they're focused on marine mammals, seabirds, um, you know, other other species. And so I haven't been as involved in those discussions over here, you know, to the degree to which, you know, how appropriate it is to silo those is kind of a separate conversation. But um, so I'm not fully aware of, of everything that's gone on here, but I certainly hope that that'll be a you know, an important part of the conversation over there, because, you know, it is a tricky conversation. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to speak in huge generalities, but I would imagine that folks who are broadly interested in seabird conservation are probably also going to be interested in in climate change mitigation, right? And so it's like, you know, you need to figure out these, you know, how how to thread the needle here and and, and make an impact while, you know, make, make a positive impact while minimizing the negative impact. So it's a, it's a really tricky needle to thread, but, um, hopefully, you know, is it, is it, who, who's leading the discussion over there, Kenton? Is it, are you going through fisheries? <laughs> oh, man, I just, honestly, it's just kind of popping up on the radar now. I mean, so I don't think anyone's leading discussion. I think yeah. we just kind of all just saw it. And now it's like, all right, well, you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, I mean, just based again here on the East coast, what I would encourage you to do, and I know you will, um, you know, is get ahead of the conversation to the extent that you can, you know, you don't want to be there, you know, um, looking at, you know, some, some very minor issue or what, what's, what's the phrase, like, you know, adjusting the curtains while the house is burning down. Right. And I think there's, you need to, you know, be, be as proactive as you can. Cause I think, you know, there's just, there's an opportunity for dialogue here. And the the real, the real important part is to be in on the conversation during the, uh, during the foundational moment to bring it all the way back to striped bass. That's kind of where we are right now. You know, we're, we're talking about, what's going to be in a draft amendment, which is why we've been so loud and so vocal, because we want to get stuff thrown out of that draft amendment before it's even a, a possibility. And I think similarly on the wind stuff, you need to think about being in on the ground floor of the conversation, making sure your concerns are heard. And then, you know, you having that history that you can then bring to the more nuanced discussions of, uh, you know, of, of the ongoing development, because there's a, a lot going on. It's something that none of us knows very much about. You know, it's a, a totally, a totally different world. Um, you know, global energy and renewable energy in particular is just a whole lot to learn. Whew. You are a knowledgeable man. We, we will, we will not, <laughs> not knock you on that, my friend. Let's still try and end this with some fun stuff, though, because we keep getting suckered. No, it's good. I, like I mean, it. you're, Sorry, you're, I, keep, I keep taking us back. Well, I guess I mentioned when. I mentioned yeah, no, when it's good. Time. And, and maybe fault. we'll have you back as it deepens. <laughs> I mean, these are all real concerns, and that's why I wanted to have you on the show. But let's try and end this on a fun note. Uh, the most meaningful fish you've ever caught. I'm, I'm here. I'm just, I'm thinking. Um, I'm thinking of my first fish. 
but I think the most meaningful fish I ever caught, and I remember this so vividly. So, you know, my, my dad was a doctor, so he'd be, he'd be out late or he'd be at work late. I remember he came home at like seven one night and I was like, dad, I want to go fishing. Dad, I want to go. Fishing. I was probably five. And uh, I had my little Zebco 202 as we all did. And we had found these weird lures. They were like, if anybody knows like what a, uh, it's like a wor- like a artificial worm harness. It was like a plastic worm with like two hooks on it and a spinner on the front. They were called baby worm rigs. And they were made by this company in Alabama called the Modo Bait Company. Um, and I remember he took me out. And this was like probably like right around Mother's Day. Um, because in retrospect, I know that the fish I'm about to talk about get active around that time. And we went out and the sun was about to set. And he was like, yeah, okay, we'll go, we'll go. And we went out there and I walked off this bridge and I flung this stupid thing out and I caught this big, weird looking fish. And I was like, what is this thing? What is this thing? I've, never, I've been fishing, you know, I've been fishing there for like a couple months and I had never seen it. And I was like, what is this? It's like a, it's like a bass that got run over. Um, and my dad was like, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Like I had caught it on the bridge and like run around to the side of the bridge onto the bank and like took it off and was looking at it. And everybody was looking at me like, you know, this is so cool. Pretending I was on a fishing show and I was like all excited. And, uh, and then I ran back up to the uh, bridge and I cast my last baby worm rig right into a cherry tree, uh, like right into it, like, you know, just not even like a branch, like just straight into it. Cause I was so excited. And, um, and I don't know why this is so vivid, but then I, I had this book. I don't know if you remember it. It's called fishing basics. It was like this blue paperback book. Um, it was all about like freshwater fish. And I looked it up and that was a black crappy. And I was like, that's so weird. I've been fishing here, like, you know, for all these months and I've never seen that fish. And it's funny for me because like I now live in DC and like, those are one of my favorite fish to catch now because like, they're so kind of enigmatic to me. Like they, they, they just kind of show up and they disappear. And this is, it was just kind of like an allegory for me of like, you know, you never really know what's, what's in there. You know, you never really know what's going on or what you're going to catch. And, uh, and that's just part of the excitement, right? I think that's why you and I love like bottom fish jigging, right? You never really know what's going to happen. You never know what kind of sea monster or river monster is out there. And uh, it kind of keeps you going back. And I don't know, that's just a story that really sticks in my head. And it was kind of like, you know, kind of one of those like better lucky than good situations where I didn't know what was going on, but I caught this really cool fish and, you know, and now it's, it's like the person with a rental rod and a clam who catches the 60 pound cod or, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the cruise ship customer on and Kona who catches a grander on a half day trip, right? It's like kind of that, that chance that kind of keeps you coming back. Um, and so I think that's, that's just a story that's always stuck with me. And it's, you know, it, it doesn't, it, on paper, it doesn't really mean a lot, but it's just one of those, like, I'm not one of those people who remembers everything from their childhood, but that story, like with my dad and his like blue, sh- like short sleeve, you know, dress shirt and tie watching me and that, you know, it just, it really sticks in my mind. I, I think like, the really term you're looking for with doesn't remember everything from the childhood is called trauma. I think that's, I think, I think that. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I think what we refer to that is, is as a special. Uh, no, I was, was going to go with the reason not. you don't remember everything uh, from your youth is trauma, but we'll just leave it at that. We are. I thought we were ending things on that. I thought we were ending things on that. We're just moving. Most beautiful thing you've ever seen out at sea. Man, I need to, I need to come up with better one-liners here. Um, I remember seeing a whale shark on a canyon trip uh, on the on the off the coast of uh, off the off like I think it was like Oceanographer Canyon off the east coast like glide under the pulpit of a of a party boat. I was on the pulpit. Uh, it went between the hull and the anchor line, just slid right under the bow, and I was like, just remember being so taken aback. It almost looked iridescent in the light. Uh, I think that was like a combination of just like totally jarring and just unbelievably beautiful. 
um, just because I had never seen one before, you know, and I was, again, I was like, you know, 60 miles east of New York City. I wasn't, you know, in, I wasn't, you know, in Hawaii, right? I wasn't somewhere where, where you might expect to see something like that. So that was a pretty, a pretty remarkable experience that I, that, that stuck in my head. Okay, these ones, you don't need to have quite as deep of an answer. We're going to end this on a little bit quicker round here. Favorite bar in the world? I don't know. Should I say the favorite bar in the world? Yeah, probably not. Um, God, favorite bar in the world. There are just so many, Kenton. I don't know if I have a, I don't know if I have a good one-liner for that one. I do love. There's a. Uh, it's a. Let's see. Yeah, it's a. It's a. It's a little. Uh, you know, it's a little hoity-toity. But the Beauport Hotel up in Gloucester has this incredible, beautiful bar, and uh, I think you know I also largely like going there because I used to go there with my dad a lot, and uh, that's just a, a pretty cool spot overlooking the uh, overlooking overlooking Gloucester Harbor right. and, uh, up in the Northeast. Good one, uh, Beauport Hotel. Favorite, favorite strip club. That's what I got. Sure. No comment. You know that. Meaning you're not really into the ladies? <laughs> Meaning I've never Is been to true? a strip club, and you know that. Probably well, couldn't have said that I... on air. Oh, that's true. Granted, I know the names of all of them because I hang out with characters like you. I failed you, you as know, a friend as far if that's as true. Blonde or brunettes? Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. You've tried. Since I was probably 14, you've tried. So, you know, this uh, is not yeah, your it's fault. It's not you. It's Don't me. I've heard that before. Um, blonde or brunette? <laughs> Brunettes. Redheads. Oh, all crazy or just 90% of them? Split the uh, difference. 95%? All right. Sure. Who parties heart? Kind of a leading question there, I would say. I'm sorry, for what's an that? objective interview. Oh. Go on. I say kind of well, a leading question. We all question have our biases, there. don't we, Mr. Science? Um, who has better looking <laughs> women, the fisheries or scientists? Oof. I would have to say scientists. Um, yeah. I would have to say this, this, this the science and uh, conservation are scientists or the fisheries. I'm going to surprise you and I'm going to say scientists. You have no idea what goes down. Well, in that would probably, well, my friend, maybe when you start doing some more research and you get to go do some presentations, you will have a different perspective. But until well, then, I mean, honestly, it doesn't surprise we'll me based scientists. on some of the uh, laws that come out of these meetings and stuff. That that actually makes sense. That you finally, <laughs> you, you, you finally just day, answered you know? the question that no one could ever figure out how these things happened. Well, there, there you have it. I did not say that. It's called a work-life balance. Sounds like you have a problem. I'm going to have someone call you later. Um, okay. Favorite whiskey. Oh, God. I've kind of been uh-huh. going back and forth recently, Kenton. I'm really liking uh, Larceny, honestly. Um, but of course, Bullet Rye is always uh, is always in, number one. I think. So no, sorry. Did you want no, me to no, say no, Crown? not I at all? But I just I, I actually prepared another question just for you because I was afraid you weren't going to be able to answer. That. I was going to say favorite wine cooler. 
See, isn't it funny that I couldn't answer any of the normal questions, yeah. but I could answer the whiskey question? I think that's, I don't know. Does that mean I've grown up or does that but, mean I'm still I don't know. This is a judgment-free place. Um, Favorite wine cooler. But, yeah, well, I appreciate that. You're such I a liar. Ever, I, I had a wine cooler. You're, I don't think you're going to throw a lot of your credibility out. There's nobody listening here right now that doesn't think you've drank a wine cooler, dude. If I did, then it is not. Okay, what do they drink at Harvard then? We'll leave it at that. Uh, I mean, obviously Manhattan's, you know, in a very, in a very, is that really in a what very you guys fine crystal glass. Or, you know, kegs, or like, you know, keg stands in that. Codfish or catfish? Oh, man. I mean, I got to say codfish. I mean, come on. I mean, that's the, the, the OG, right? Um, I will say I'm, I'm loving these Potomac River blue catfish. They hit like a tuna fish and catching a, catching a 40 pound fish. Have you caught a bigger cod or a bigger catfish? Uh, Close, but I probably just about even, honestly, but I think probably cod. I don't think I've broken 50 on a cat. And I think, uh, I think I've got, I've had two codfish that were pushing 50 the one I caught with you and one that I caught uh, out of Boston Harbor one year. Actually, three. I, no, three, three pushing 50. All right. So I'm going to go uh, cod. Thank God. Thank God. That's <laughs> favorite really quote about the sciences. Yeah. About the sciences? I've actually got a good one that actually applies to uh, fishing as well. It's a Mark Twain quote. Um, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure. That well, just that's a good so. one. My next question was going to be uh, your favorite quote about fishing. Does that apply as your favorite quote about fishing as well? Can you hear me, Kenton? Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Did, did you not hear the question? I said, uh, I also was going to ask you, what is your favorite quote about fishing? Does that Was that also your favorite quote about fishing? Um. My favorite quote about fishing. Yeah. I mean, that's up there uh, for sure. You know, and of course I love the old saying early to bed, early to rise, fish all day, make up lies because that's just something that's hokey. And that gives me a little chuckle because I have a very undeveloped sense of humor, as you know. Well, that would actually explain most of your fish <laughs> stories too. Um, you know, f- first of all, I want to, uh, I want to thank you for being here. How about some inspiring words for future scientists or, and or future fishermen? You got anything? Yes. Um, I would say follow your passion and, uh, and don't let, uh, you know, don't let obstacles get in the way of it. Don't let logistics get in the way of it. And I will say that uh, in your career, as in fishing, uh, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. So uh, get yourself prepared and uh, to be in a good spot. And, you know, what do they, what do they say? Right. Don't, don't don't uh don't rig up for the fish you uh, expect to catch rig for the fish you want to catch so i think uh that's you know i've gotten really lucky kenton and where i am right now um and a lot of it is just kind of being trying to keep myself in a position to 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 be available to take advantage of opportunities so um i think that's pretty similar to fishing you know it's the same idea uh you can't catch fish without a bait in the water and all that jazz so uh that's i guess those those would be my pieces of advice Awesome. Okay. How do people find you? How do they get a hold of you? Um, yeah. What, what are your handles? Yes, sir. Um, well, I'll do the, uh, the organizational stuff first. So again, the American Saltwater Guides Association, and that's uh, 
we're American Saltwater Guides Association on Facebook and then uh, at Saltwater Guides Association on Instagram. Uh, you can check out our website, which is saltwaterguidesassociation.com. Uh, my own Instagram is at Willie Goldfish, uh, like the goldfish. And uh, my email is Willie at saltwaterguidesassociation.org. And um, I guess, you know, I guess that's it. Those are pretty easy to get a hold of me. I'm sure people can bother you for my info as well. But uh, Willie Goldfish on Instagram is probably the easiest way and happy to talk through any of this stuff uh, more. You know, as you can, as you can probably tell, um, this is what we call a work-life blend, not a work-life balance. Work never really ends. And, uh, and you know, the, the passion never really ends. So always happy to talk somebody's ear off about fisheries and, uh, and natural resource issues. Awesome. Well, Willie, thank you so much for being here today. Greatly appreciate it, my friend. And uh, look forward to uh, talking to you again. Hopefully it was uh, pretty painless. <laughs> it was, uh, you were a little easier on me than I thought you'd be. So it was, uh, it was a real pleasure. Uh, glad to have the chance to, to talk shop a bit and, and look forward to the next one and, you know, loving the podcast and, and look forward to uh, continuing to follow along. I, I'm not going to lie. I did take it kind of easy on yeah. you because you sounded a little bit more professional than I thought you would. So, you know what? Thanks again. You know I what? appreciate before, it. And I look forward to catching up. Before we go, Kenton, I, I'm embarrassed to, I'm yeah. embarrassed to admit um, we we're talking about Saltwater Guides Association. Um, we have a new podcast uh, that, that came out this month. Oh. We've got, I believe, four or five episodes. Tell us about it. Um, it's basically a, you know, a gathering place to talk about fisheries issues. Uh, talk, you know, I think similar to what you're doing, talking about, the conservation issues of the day, but also just getting some of our members on there to talk about their fisheries and, and you know, talk about some of the challenges they're seeing. So uh, it's called The Guidepost, um, and it is on both um, iTunes and on Spotify. So again, it's called The Guidepost. I think we've only got uh, five episodes or so right now, but we're, we're cranking up quickly, and we'll be talking about both, uh, you know, local, regional, and also broader federal issues. So we'd love, uh, love to have some folks tune in and hear what we got to say. All right, man. Fantastic. Well, you are definitely a wealth of knowledge. And so I look forward to listening to that myself. And uh, awesome. Thank you so much, my friend. Let's do it Sounds again. Sounds good, buddy. We'll talk soon. All right, man. Take care. Bye. Well, guys, I think that was a pretty impressive interview. I learned a lot. Just a friendly reminder, if you like what we're talking about, you don't like what we're talking about, leave us a message. We want to hear your opinion. Uh, also, Vicious Cycle, Whiskey, Women, and Water comes out next month. Uh, I'll have a link up here shortly. But, uh, you know, if you're interested in what we're saying, uh, The Life of a Fisherman, I've got my first book coming out. And I greatly appreciate, uh, I greatly appreciate your support. And so I'll have a link for that shortly where we can do pre-orders and uh, purchase the book. Thank you very much again for your time. It is not wasted on me the fact that you are – investing your time in us. So thank you very much. Aloha.